0: Welcome to Hack Stack Level 4, the final level. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to explore, and yes, find the meaning of life. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first three levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Koz
1: hey welcome everyone to hack stack we are continuing our journey through level four we are on episode number 26 man i cannot believe we're up to 26 already but it's only the third episode of level four but i think we've covered a lot of ground so far and i'm going to try to continue to cover a lot of ground quickly I am a uh, Pareto principle kind of guy trying to get the most bang for your buck. Uh, and I think you can do a lot of things if, if the effort is concentrated. How you answer the question, does God exist, really plays strongly into how one answers that question, uh, the meaning of life. And people can spend a lifetime researching this topic and trying to come to some sort of conclusion on this question, and I I totally applaud that. Um, This episode is more geared toward the people that haven't spent hardly any time on the question. They, They may have pondered it in their mind, but they haven't really done much research or thought that deeply about this question. So this episode, along with the last two, we're going to continue down that path. And, and I hope to demonstrate how how easy it is to maybe think about this question. I mean, at the end of the day, there's only a handful of arguments for or against the existence of God. And my point here that I'm going to try to communicate is there isn't a lot of disagreement on the evidence uh, there just becomes a disagreement on what conclusion one can draw from the evidence all right we've already covered uh, the moral arguments and there's actually only two other arguments that we need to cover and that's the beginning of the universe and the design argument and we're going to fly through those really quickly and if you get these two topics down you will probably be ahead of ah goodness 95% of the population i mean from an information point of view you'll be able to talk accurately about these subjects but at the very least and the more more important thing is you'll be able to think about these two topics uh, with a little more detail And hopefully, you have a little more oomph when you uh, go to ponder some of these questions. There's not a lot of disagreement on the evidence. There's just disagreement on the conclusions that can be drawn from the evidence. So I think the evidence is pretty powerful, it's pretty strong. But I'm also going to ironically afterwards talk about how. How I think this evidence really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Uh, There's other things that are more important that are a little more intuitive and you can almost (laughs) throw some of these things out the window but to be fair and honest to yourself you really need to hear these things and you really need to be aware of the ideas that are being argued back and forth. So my hope is here in about one hour which is about the time it takes to watch an episode of your favorite tv show you are going to get some heavy concentrated doses of philosophy that will go a long way to help you solve some of these bigger questions. So it's really not a huge investment of time for the payoff, so stick with me for about an hour maybe a little over. Uh there'll be some extra credit as well, but I think this this first hour should give you a really good idea of uh how people address some of these questions and then I'm going to close up with some just some fascinating stuff that I just discovered uh, regarding the atheist Christopher Hitchens. Um, It's it's really fascinating stuff Uh, and it will tie into my my point that some of these these bigger arguments end up not mattering compared to uh, a few other things. So, anyway, let's get started. And we're going to start with the beginning of the universe. It's a topic we already covered in episode six. I know everyone might not have listened to that episode, and it's a little more intuitive to put all in one show right now so people don't have to search for things. So, if you've already listened to this, that's fine. You can maybe fast forward just a little bit, maybe 15 minutes or so. Uh, If you haven't listened to it uh, or if you want to listen to it again, it's really important and it really lays the groundwork for these big questions. So we're going to start off with Frank Turek and he's going to talk about the evidence of God and the beginning of the universe and how really uncontroversial this topic is. But we're going to jump into it and start to lay that foundation for the rest of this episode. So check it out, and we'll have some comments afterwards.
2: The evidence for the Big Bang is good. Some of the evidence is right here, okay? Let's talk about this evidence, and we'll talk about the second law of thermodynamics, the S first. The second law of thermodynamics says the universe is running down. It's running out of energy. In other words, as time goes on and on, The sun is burning out and all the stars are burning out. All the energy is going away. You guys have seen these magazine covers, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine. It will say something like on the cover, when will the universe end? Well, they always say it will. They say, don't worry about it. It will be several billion years from now. But ultimately, that sun up there is going to burn out. Ultimately, those stars, all the hydrogen in the stars is going to be used up and we're not going to have any more energy. The universe is going to go to heat death. Now, here's why this shows the universe had a beginning. Because if the second law of thermodynamics has been in place forever, ever since the universe began, if it did begin, then, well, let me put it this way. Suppose the universe didn't have a beginning, but the second law of thermodynamics has always been in place. Would that sun still be burning today? No, it would have burned up a long time ago, right? Because it only has so much energy in it. And so if, it was, if it's been burning from all eternity, it would have burned out a long time ago. Just like your car. You only have a finite tank of gas in that car, right? Suppose you got a 20-gallon tank. You put gas in it, right? How far can you go on your 30 or 20-gallon tank? Well, you know. You figure it out by the miles, right? Well, let's suppose that you put gas in that car an infinitely long time ago and had been driving it from all eternity. Would you have any gas in it now? No, you would have burned out a long time ago. Well, that's the way the universe is. The universe is running out of energy, and if the universe didn't have a beginning, all the energy would be used up today. Another way of thinking about it is think about it like a dying flashlight. If I were to take a flashlight right here, ...and have batteries in it... ...and I turned the flashlight on... ...and I put it on the podium... ...and we come back tomorrow... ...for the 9 o'clock service... ...is the light coming out of that flashlight... ...still going to be as intense... ...as it is tonight? No, it might be dimmed... ...or it might be gone completely, right? It might be dead. Why? Because there's only so much energy in those batteries. Well, think about the universe as having batteries... ...and it's running out of its energy... ...in those batteries the longer it goes on. If the universe didn't have a beginning... The batteries would have died out a long time ago, right? Another way of looking at it is that the second law of thermodynamics brings things toward disorder. You see those cubes up there? Look at the cube on the left. See how nice and ordered that is? Now you look at the cube on the right. That's what nature tends to do to things. Let's suppose we took the cube on the left, the very ordered one, and we went down to the ocean. We threw it in the ocean and let that cube tumble in the waves, okay? What's it going to look like if we pull it out of those waves, say, a few minutes later? Probably going to look like the one on the right. If I took that cube on the right then and threw it back in the waves, is it ever going to come out looking like the one on the left? Probably not. Why? Because nature brings things toward disorder, not order. Things break down. Human beings break down. You know, when you get older, you get dresser disease. That's when your chest falls into your drawers. Okay? We break down. So if the universe didn't have a beginning, in other words, it's been here from all eternity, we we would have all disorder now. There'd be no order. But there's still order left, right? So the second law of thermodynamics points to the fact that the universe had a beginning because we still have energy, we still have order. You with me? All right. Let's move on to you in surge. The universe is expanding. If time were reversed and we could watch the universe we would see all the galaxies collapse back to a point of nothing. In other words, when scientists look through their telescopes, they can see a redshift in the light. It shows that all those galaxies are moving away from us. This is what Edwin Hubble saw from Mount Wilson Observatory in Mount Wilson, California in the late 1920s. He discovered the redshift in the light from all these galaxies. And he said... If all those galaxies are moving away from us now, and if we could reverse time, we would see all those galaxies collapse back upon themselves. So mathematically and logically, they were nothing. And then the universe leapt out of that into being. So once there was nothing and then bang, the galaxies leapt into existence, or I should say the explosion, which ultimately resulted in galaxies, leapt into existence. In fact... Einstein had a hand in this, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The R in surge stands for the radiation afterglow. And what the radiation afterglow is, it's the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion. These two scientists operating in Homedale, New Jersey, in 1965, had this big horn antenna. You see that big goofy antenna behind them? And this antenna was picking up static no matter where they turned it in the sky. And they couldn't figure out where it was coming from or why it was out there. And then they went out in the antenna and they looked inside and they saw that there were pigeons nesting in this antenna, Jersey Shore pigeons. So they actually had these traps to trap these pigeons. They trapped the pigeons. They cleaned all the pigeon dung out of there. And they went back inside and they said, that probably solved the static problem. Went back inside, static was still there. No matter where they turned that antenna, They found the static. What they had discovered was the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion. It's still out there. It's just a little bit above absolute zero. Everywhere in the universe, it's there, the heat. To give you an illustration, you ever watching TV at night when the lights are out? What do you see when you turn off the TV? Kind of like a glow coming off the TV. That's heat. Coming off the TV, that's what they found from the initial Big Bang explosion. It's still out there. These two guys in 1978 won Nobel Prizes for that discovery. Now, a lot of people to until this discovery was made, thought that the universe was static and never had a beginning, that it was eternal. Here's what an agnostic astronomer said after this discovery was made. No explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. That put the nail in the coffin of people who thought the universe was static and never had a beginning, that it was eternal. It's always been here. But there's more evidence, not just the radiation afterglow. Scientists said that if the radiation afterglow does exist, it ought to have very fine variations, temperature variations in that afterglow. So in 1989, they sent up a satellite to discover it. And for three years, it circled the Earth, and they looked for these temperature variations in this radiation afterglow, and they couldn't find anything. They kept looking, they kept looking. He said, it's not there. He said, look, if the Big Bang's true, it has to be there. Kept looking, kept looking. You know what they finally figured out? They were not looking precisely enough. In 1992, they fine-tuned their measurements to the point that they found that the temperature variations were so precise They were down to one part in 100,000. The leader of the expedition, a man by the name of George Smoot, said, we found the fingerprints of the Creator. He said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Stephen Hawking called it, they found the holy grail of cosmology. This is the greatest discovery of cosmology, which is the study of the beginning of the universe. It's the greatest discovery in cosmology. It may be the greatest discovery of all time. In fact, this man, George Smoot, the man I just said, he said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God, wrote the book Wrinkles in Time. And just last October, a year ago this month, he and his partner won Nobel Prizes for discovering this Great, what we call great galaxy seeds. The reason we call them great galaxy seeds is because these are the temperature variations that allowed the galaxies to form. Now, the final letter in our acronym is E in SURGE. It's for Einstein's Theory of General Relativity. And Einstein's Theory of General Relativity says time, space, and matter are co-relative, that you can't have one without the other, that time, space, and matter came into existence together. Once there was no space, once there was no time, once there was no matter, and then it leapt into existence out of nothing. As I've said before, Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, Nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing. And the entire space time continuum leapt into existence out of that. Einstein's theory has been proven accurate to five decimal points. It did have a beginning. If it had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Now, Einstein, for a while, didn't want the universe to have a beginning. In fact, he called his general relativity calculations irritating. Irritating? Robert Jastrow, an agnostic astronomer, wrote, that's awfully emotional language for a discussion about some mathematical formulas. What did he mean by that? Because scientists don't always tell you the truth. Because they don't want the conclusion that the evidence leads to to be true. It's irritating to them personally. They don't want there to be a God. Einstein for a while didn't want that either. But in 1929, Edwin Hubble invited Einstein out to his observatory in Mount Wilson, California. And he said, Al, come on out. Take a look in the telescope and you will see what I see. Einstein came out, saw the red shift in the light, saw that the galaxies were moving away from us, and at that point he went, "Uh-oh." See, for about 15 years before that, after he developed general rel- relativity theory, you know what he did? He put a cosmological constant in his equations to keep the universe from having a beginning. He wanted the universe to be eternal and static. So he put a cosmological constant in there. In order to put the cosmological constant, some big mathematical formula, he had to divide by zero. Now, what do you learn in second grade? You don't divide by zero. But the great Einstein divided by zero. Why? Because he didn't want there to be a beginning. But when he saw the confirming evidence of the redshift in the light, even Einstein said, I can't keep this charade up any longer. He said, I repent of the cosmological constant. It was the greatest mistake in my professional career. I don't care about the details now. All I want to know is the mind of God. Now, Einstein, to our knowledge, never became a Christian, never even became a theist. He was a pantheist. When he was asked, what kind of God do you believe in? He said, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Spinoza was a pantheist from the 1600s. A god, a god of a pantheistic god, as you know, is god of God is all. God is me. God is you. God is the grass. God is the trees. Now that doesn't seem very logical to me. Here's Einstein's evidence pointing to a theistic god. Yet personally, he says, "I believe in a pantheistic god." What does that tell you? People don't always follow the evidence, do they? Even their own. Now, there's one more point about the universe having a beginning. In addition to the second law, universe expanding, radiation afterglow, great galaxy and Einstein's theory of general relativity, there's a philosophical line of evidence that the universe had a beginning. And it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, stay with me on this, all right? Let's look at a timeline, right? Let's say, from your perspective, this would be history, right, over here. You're looking at a timeline, right? And we don't know if the universe had a beginning at this point. Let's just say there's a timeline and somewhere over here represents history. And as we come through history, we get to Adam and Moses and, you know, Jesus maybe being here and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and all the great heroes of the faith. And you ultimately get to today. Here's today right here, okay? Tomorrow's not here yet. When tomorrow comes, we had another day and the timeline gets longer, right? And the day after that, we had another day, time line gets a little longer. That's not here yet. Here's today. Question. What is the definition of an infinite? What is it? Something that has no end. Goes on and on and on, right? No end. Well, does our timeline today have an end? Yeah, right? Here's today. It's got an end. So this cannot be an infinite timeline, can it? See, if there were an infinite number of moments before today, today never would have gotten here. And you can't be at the end of an infinite. So no matter how far back we go, we know that this timeline had a beginning. Whether it was billions of years ago, thousands of years ago, let's leave that question to the side for a second. However far back it went, it had to have a beginning. Because you can't be at the end of an infinite, can you? But we are today. So this is known as the Kalam Cosmolo- cosmological argument, and it states that time cannot be infinite. All right. Finally, let's point out of, of, of how people deal with this. This is Robert Jastrow. You see on the screen, Jastrow is an agnostic. He's the guy that sits in the same chair Edwin Hubble sat in when uh, Hubble invited Einstein to the observatory. Same place. Mount Wilson, California. He's in his 80s now. And he's not a believer. He's an agnostic. Here's what he says in his book, God and the Astronomers, which he wrote in 1978. And he revised in 1992. In this book, he goes through some of the evidence I just went through. The surge evidence. Here's what he says. He says, the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. In an interview, he went on to say this. Astronomers now found they've painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this has happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. Now get this. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Why? Why is Jastro admitting there are supernatural forces at work? Because he knows that the entire natural realm was created out of nothing. So if it's not a natural cause that brought it into existence, what must it be? Something beyond the natural, something supernatural. That's what the word means. Supernatural means something beyond the natural. Jastro, an agnostic astronomer, admits this. Here's the bottom line to the entire thing. If the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. The evidence leaves us as one of the following two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, right? Or someone created something out of nothing. Now, which view is more reasonable? No one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing? The best evidence points to the fact that the universe had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Make sense? We're just following the evidence where it leads. Now you say, how do atheists respond to this? Poorly. (laughs) Let me give you how Richard Dawkins responds to it. This is Richard Dawkins right here in the God delusion. Here's what he says. He says, God needs an explanation. Who made God, basically. However statistically improbable, the entity you seek to explain by invoking a designer... The designer himself has got to be at least as improbable. God is the ultimate Boeing 747. What does he mean by that? Because sometimes we're known to say that to believe that, say, life was created by natural law is like believing that a tornado raging through a junkyard creates a Boeing 747, right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Tornadoes don't put things together. They rip things apart. Well, Dawkins is trying to tell us that if you're saying that God created this incredible universe, and he admits it's incredible, he admits it appears designed, he says it's only apparently designed, his main argument is who made God, right? Look, if you ever get that question, here's how you answer it. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody made God. Why? Because God is unmade. Look, there's two possibilities. Either, well, let me back up. Since something exists, something must have always existed, right? Because you can't create yourself, can you? You have to exist prior to creating anything. So since something exists, we exist, something must have always existed. There must be something eternal out there, right? Okay? So, if that's so, we have to exist to say it so we know we exist. If that's so then there's only one or two possibilities. Either the universe has always existed or something outside the universe has always existed. Now, we've just given evidence that what? The universe has not always existed. Time, space, and matter came into existence out of nothing. So it must be something outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter that has always existed. All right. In fact, let me point out a couple more things that we're going to finish up here. I'm not making this up. This is another explanation from the National Geographic magazine in October 1999. Self-generating universes. Multiple universes grow like branches from a tree trunk in a model that allows the universe to create itself. What? One scientist in the article admitted, he said, it's sort of like we're brushing our ignorance under the rug of the very early universe. Exactly. One atheist is very, very honest. This is Anthony Kenny, who's an atheist. He wrote this. He said, according to the Big Bang Theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he's an atheist, must believe that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Exactly. The universe did come from nothing and by nothing if you're an atheist, That's not an explanation. That's not a good one in my mind. There must be a cause where that universe came from. In fact, Robert Jastrow, the guy I was talking about before, the agnostic who wrote God and the Astronomers and said, there are supernatural forces at work. The very last line of his book, God and the Astronomers, says this. After going through all the evidence, this is worth the price of the book. He says... For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Now, question. Am I up here quoting the Bible to say, here's why you ought to believe in creation? All right. That's the cosmological argument.
1: So that is the cosmological argument. And you'll start to see all the things that flow and all the possibilities that come from the fact that the universe had a beginning. And then the question associated with that evidence is, was the universe caused or uncaused? For the theologian, that is an easy question. For the atheist, that becomes more difficult. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, There's some theories about the multiverse we may touch on. But the biggest thing, it's a little subtle, but the biggest thing I want you to take from that clip you just listened to is how Richard Dawkins talked about the apparent design of the universe, right? So Dawkins and other atheists admit that the universe appears to be designed, right? It looks designed, but it's really, it's really just the illusion that it's designed. It's not really designed. And I want you to remember that word illusion because it's going to come up again, right? So you have people that are on both sides of this does God exist question, right? You've got atheists and you've got theists. And both sides are saying the universe is designed. One side is saying it's designed because there's a designer. And the other side is saying it just appears to be designed. Right? It has the illusion of design. So stick that in your back pocket. We're going to run through the next argument. We are going to run you through, oh man, it's going to be the gauntlet of arguments for and against God. You are going to get quick lessons. So we are on to lesson two. Which is a few minutes shorter than the clip you just listened to. And we are going to talk a little bit more about specifically the design of the universe, right? So we already established that the universe had a beginning. Now we're going to talk some specifics about the universe and its design. So let's, let's roll Frank Turk again. Here you go.
2: I was in Indianapolis this morning with Dr. Geister, my co-author. And we got a question from the audience On the immensity of the universe. I talked about how last week the fact that we are infinitesimal in terms of size, our solar system, to the rest of the universe. And the question came from the audience this morning. Well... Why do we think there's a God? And Why is all this material out there? Why is all this space out there, which we'll get to tonight? And Dr. Geiser had an answer. He said, let's go to Psalm 8. Take, take a look at Psalm 8 for a second. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is the question we got this morning. When I consider how awesome this universe is, what do you care about little old me? You just look up in the sky and you go, unbelievable. And hopefully after tonight, you'll have some more insight into why the universe is unbelievable. Because we're going to get into the design of the universe tonight. Last time we talked about the fact that the universe exploded into being out of nothing. Einstein's theory of general relativity says that time, space, and matter leapt into existence out of nothing. So it must be something outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter that brought it into existence. It can't be a natural cause that created the universe because nature itself was created. So if it's not a natural cause, it must be a supernatural cause. But now we need to deal with the question, when the universe exploded into being, did it do so with any? Sort of specificity, or was it, did it was just like a chaotic explosion, like something just blew up and things went out randomly? We're about to see that it was not a chaotic explosion. This week we're going to give the teleological argument. And here's the teleological argument. Fancy word for design, don't be put off by it. Design argument, Greek word telos, alright, means design or purpose. And the design argument goes like this. Every design had a designer. The universe and life have highly complex design. Therefore, the universe and life had a designer. I don't think we need to prove argument one or premise one, I should say. Every design had a designer. We know that. In fact, uh, we'll touch on that a little bit. The key point, though, we need to deal with is point B. The universe and life have highly complex design. Is that true? You guys ready to go? This is the old William Paley watch argument. If you're walking in the woods and you found this diamond-studded Rolex, you would immediately assume natural law created that, right? No, you would say, what? There's got to be a watchmaker. The wind, the rain, erosion doesn't just put together watches. There's always a watchmaker. Well, William Paley came up with this argument. He said, every watch implies a watchmaker. So... The question is, is the universe like a watch or is it not designed at all? That's what we're going to look at. In order to do this, we're going to talk about science. We've already talked about science in in argument one, cosmological argument. We're going to really need to define what we mean by science. And if someone were to thrust a microphone in front of your face and say, what is science, what would you say? Very good. Observation, experiment, and evaluation. You're trying to find knowledge, he said. Very good definition. In fact, Sir Francis Bacon, I think, had a very simpler definition. Yours is, is, uh, is probably more complex, a better definition. But he said true knowledge is knowledge by causes. In other words, science is a search for causes, right? That's what you're trying to do when you do science. You're trying to discover what caused a particular effect, right? Now, stay with me on this. I think observation and repetition are important. Evaluation, as you said, but hold on. There are two types of causes. Here they are. First type of cause, non-intelligent or natural cause, okay, like gravity. That's a cause, right? If I drop this remote, it's going to go to the ground. What caused that? Gravity, bang, right? Takes it right to the ground. But there's another type of cause that scientists don't talk about too often, and that is an intelligent cause. What's an intelligent cause? Well, it could be supernatural, or it could just be a person, say putting this presentation together, right? That's an intelligent cause. Or you, right now, you're writing. That's an intelligent cause. Somebody writing is an intelligent cause. If somebody finds this tablet in the woods, they're not going to go, oh, look, the raccoons came up here and did that, right? Now, unfortunately, what people do is they rule out intelligent causes before they look at the evidence. And so they only can come to a natural cause, which means that they say that only natural causes are scientific causes. I think that's stupid, and I'll show you why. Anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? Right? You've been to the Grand Canyon? Beautiful geologic formation, right? You can see the canyon there. You see a tree in the foreground, rim in the background. Now, when you try and posit a cause for the Grand Canyon, do you have to assume that some intelligent being, like a big god, stuck his finger down in the the canyon down there or down in the earth to create a canyon? Now, what, what could have caused a canyon like that? A lot of water, right? You bring a lot of water, and you can figure out that a canyon's caused by natural forces. How do we know? Well, through observation and repetition, we can take water and put it on a landmass, and we'll get a canyon or a gully. We do it over and over again, right? Okay? Observation and repetition. Doesn't have to be an intelligent cause doing this, does it? Now... Can everybody see the difference between this geologic formation, the Grand Canyon, and this geologic formation, Mount Rushmore? What caused the faces on Mount Rushmore? Certainly not erosion, but not natural erosion. Why? Because you can work through observation and repetition from now till doomsday, throwing wind, rain, water out a bunch of rock. You'll never get the four presidents on Mount Rushmore there, right? You realize that's an intelligent cause. You with me so far? All right, let's keep moving. All I'm saying here, the two types of causes, natural cause, intelligent cause. Natural cause, Grand Canyon. Intelligent cause, Mount Rushmore. Let's take Mount Rushmore for a second. Now, stay with me on this. This is important stuff. We know when Mount Rushmore was created, right? We saw people create it. We have video of people t- chiseling in the side of that mountain there in South Dakota, It happened in uh, the early 20th century. the 1930s. sometime then, they made Mount Rushmore, right? We know how it happened. But let's say that we find a structure like Mount Rushmore, and we didn't know anybody, we didn't see anybody, we don't have any eyewitnesses of how that structure was made. This happens to be the Buddhist statues in Afghanistan that the Taliban blew up before 2001. Now, I don't know if you can see this on this side, I'll point it out, but right there, that's a person... So that those statues were about 40 or 50 stories high, and the Taliban said that these are blasphemous to Allah, so they blew them up. All right, but question: We didn't see anybody do that. So how do we know that, or how do we know how those things were created—the Buddhist statues? How do we know? Well, we use a principle in science known as the principle of uniformity. It says that causes in the past were like those in the present. Causes in the past were like those in the present. We have to assume that if today it takes an intelligent being to create Mount Rushmore, that in the past it required an intelligent being to create something like Mount Rushmore. Make sense? If we can't assume that, we can't get at the past. Every cop show that you've ever seen on TV uses a type of science that's not observation and repetition like our standard definition. It's called forensic science right? Police use this all the time. They got to figure out a murder. The only way they can do it is look at clues and piece things together. They can't go back in time. They can't bring the, the victims back to life and figure out, you know, let's observe this from another, from across the street or They can't do any of that. They can only look at clues and forensically figure out what happened. And that's the way they figure out the past, That's what we're going to do when we look at the universe. We're going to use forensic science to try and discover if the universe was designed or not. So we're going to apply this to to the universe and life, this idea of forensic science and the principle of uniformity. How many are with me so far? All right, let's go. Let's take a look at the universe. What caused the universe? There's only two possibilities, either intelligence or non-intelligence, right? Right. There's no other third alternative. This is called the law of the excluded middle in logic. It's either one or the other, either intelligence or non-intelligence. Either it was created by an intelligent designer, i.e. a supreme being like God, or it was created by natural law. Now, actually, if you remember from last week, we've already disproved it could have been natural law. It could have been natural law. Why? Because we said that nature itself was created. But anyway, let's just keep going and see where we wind up. What we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, is the universe designed or was it brought together by natural law? Maybe it exploded into being out of nothing, but then it just exploded randomly after that. You know, I mean, there was no design to it. All right? What we're going to do is use the principle of uniformity to try and figure out whether the universe was created by an intelligent being or just by some sort of natural process. If we see today it was designed... We're going to come to the same type of cause that it was designed yesterday. And this is what scientists call the anthropic principle. It says that the universe was precisely tweaked to support life here on earth. Anthropos comes from the Greek word which means man. The universe was precisely designed, precisely tweaked so man, i.e. mankind, men, women, could exist. How do we know? Well, our measurement capabilities are getting better and better. And the more we measure this universe and aspects of it, we realize how incredibly precise everything is. Let me give you some examples. Oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If it were 25%, fires would erupt spontaneously. If it were 15%, we would all suffocate. Oxygen, right level. Secondly, if the universe was expanding at a rate one millionth more slowly than it is now, the earth would not even exist. Thirdly, if the gravitational force were altered by one part in 10 to the 40, the sun would not exist and the moon would crash into the earth or shear off into space. And you say one part in 10 to the 40, what does that mean? It's very infinitesimal change. Any scientists in here? What does one part in 10 to the 40 mean? Anyone want to explain it? Yes, sir, go ahead. A decimal point, 40 zeros, and a one at the end. Let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose I had a long tape measure from that side of the auditorium all the way to the other side of the auditorium by the door, right? And there it's broken up. It's inches, okay? Let's say gravity is set right here. It could be set over here. It could be set over here. Regardless of what the, the units of setting are, just, let's just say it's that long. If gravity set here, if we moved it an inch, life would end. There'd be no life. Well, I just lied to you. You know why? Because the scale is not from that wall to that wall. The scale is the entire width of the universe. And if gravity was moved by one inch on that scale, we'd never be here to know about it. That's how precisely tweaked the universe is. Take a look at our solar system. There we are, third rock from the sun, right? We are at the right position in the universe and in the right position in the solar system for life to exist. If we were a little bit closer to, a little bit further from the sun, we either burn up or we'd freeze. If the axial tilt wasn't 23 degrees, 23 and a half degrees, we wouldn't be here. You know what keeps the universe or keeps our axial tilt at 23 degrees? The moon. If we didn't have that moon, we wouldn't be here. Our axial tilt would wobble, which would mean what? It would mean it would get extremely cold and extremely hot. 23 degrees, just right. If the earth rotation wasn't 24 hours we wouldn't be here. If it was faster, the wind velocities across the surface of the earth would be too great for life. And if it was slower, it would get too hot during the day and too cold during the night. If Jupiter wasn't in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. couple of reasons. Jupiter's orbit is the right orbit for us. If Jupiter's orbit was more elliptical than circular it would pull us out of our circular orbit, which means we'd sometimes get too close to the sun and sometimes we'd get too far away from it. We'd either burn up or we'd freeze. But Jupiter also acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner. It attracts all the cosmic space junk and all the meteors to it rather than us. In fact, if you take a close-up look at Jupiter, do you see those purple marks on Jupiter? Those purple marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Now, take our solar system, right? Now, think about our solar system. How big is our solar system compared to our galaxy? Well, first of all, in order to give you perspective, we'd have to shrink our galaxy down to the size of the continental United States. How big would our solar system be if the galaxy, our galaxy was the size of the continental United States, our solar system would be the size of a quarter on the floor of the Nevada desert And we'd be a microscopic speck of dust on that quarter. That's why the guy today was asking, why would God care about a microscopic speck of dust on a quarter? What do you think we would think about God and about his creation if the heavens ended at the cloud tops? That was it. That's the whole show, the whole universe right there. That's it. No further. We wouldn't get this sense of awe, would we? But when you think about the immensity of the universe, and we're a quarter, a speck of dust on a quarter in the continental United States, you realize, man, whoever put this together is awesome. Yeah, that's the point.
1: So there's a lot of interesting analogies in that clip about how precisely tweaked this universe is. And I had to edit that clip down quite a bit. I was just trying to give you a feel for how much information is out there. And honestly, that's only the tip of the iceberg. There is just some amazing stuff when you look at the precision of this universe. So that's why people like Richard Dawkins, they're forced into a corner saying the universe just appears to be designed because there is no controversy at all when it comes to the precision of the universe. And how atheists try to answer this is they talk about the multiverse right because the real question the multiverse theory tries to answer is why is the universe that we live in so precisely tuned and if you can come up with a theory that there's some sort of multiverse generator that's just spitting out multiple universes at some point just probability you're going to hit the jackpot and have a universe that has the potential for life which on a very basic level like i guess guess i would agree with that but then the question is where does this multi-universe generator come from i mean that had to have a beginning as well so the problem is is just push one step back so then the question would become okay did this multi-universe generator did that have a beginning or was that eternal and then you see you'd be faced with the same set of problems. But the biggest problem with the multiverse theory is there is no evidence. I mean, I've looked, You've, you've people are desperate to find it, but there is no evidence for multiple universes. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be that hard to figure out why, because if there was a... A universe that caused this universe or there's multiple universes outside of our current universe that's the problem right it would be outside of the universe and you you couldn't have natural physical evidence for that if it's not in our natural physical world so this discussion of illusion seems to be uh, i don't know in my opinion it seems to be relatively feeble attempt to explain the the common sense evidence of what's going on But again, let's march on. Let's continue to go through the uh, gauntlet of arguments for the existence of God. This clip is even shorter, and it's going to touch on the design of life. So I'll have a few comments afterwards, and then I'll also discuss my theory as to why some of these more traditional arguments don't matter a whole lot and where, where the real argument lies and where people tend to draw a line in the sand. And some people don't even realize they're drawing that line. But not to get ahead of ourselves, let's listen to uh, this next clip.
2: This is a one-celled amoeba. Now, in Darwin's day, as I mentioned earlier, they didn't think this was anything really too complicated. They thought this was just a blob of protoplasm, not much to it. Well, that's not the case because we know a lot more now. Here's what we know. First of all, let's talk about the fact, again, there's only two possibilities. Either the first life came into existence by intelligence or by non-intelligence, right? There's no other possibility. Either there was intelligence behind it or there wasn't, all right? So we're going to use that same principle we've been using, that principle of uniformity. Was the first life created by intelligent design or natural law? And... We're going to figure out by using the principle of uniformity that if we find today that an amoeba and the minimal amount of life is designed, then we're going to assume that yesterday, however far back you go, it also required intelligence, right? Now, t- today it could come together by natural law. Then we'll assume that yesterday it came together by natural law. You with me? All right. In order to do this, I've got to take you to your breakfast table. How many like alphabet cereal? Let's suppose you want to have a bowl of alphabet cereal one day. You come down, you're a teenager, you come downstairs and you see the alphabet cereal is knocked over on the table and on the placemat, the letter spelled, take out the garbage, mom. What are you going to assume? The cat knocked the box over? Earthquake shook the house? No, you're going to say that's intelligent design from an intelligent being, right? Why? Well, you know, from now to doomsday, if you try and knock that alphabet cereal over, you'll never get take out the garbage, Mom. Natural laws don't do that. That's always a sign from an intelligent being. Or let's suppose you're laying out on the beach and you see in the clouds, drink Coke. What do you assume? Unusual cloud formation? No. Even though you didn't see the skywriter up there, you knew he had to be up there at some point. Because only minds create messages. And that's what this is. It's a message. So if only minds can create, take out the garbage, mom, or drink Coke... Only minds can, cre- can create DNA. What's DNA? DNA is a four-letter genetic alphabet that is in every living thing. You have DNA, I have DNA, a dog has DNA, a banana has DNA. And a DNA, this four-letter genetic alphabet, communicates information. It codes your makeup, if you will. Your physical makeup. It's like a software program. And these four letters communicate information much like our 26 letter genetic alphabet or 26 letter English alphabet communicates information, except the English alphabet has 26 letters, this one only has four. Now, the question is how much DNA is in a one celled amoeba? The point I want to make here is, is that. DNA can communicate a message like take out the garbage mom. Except in living things, it's a lot more complicated than take out the garbage mom. How much information, DNA information, is in a one-celled amoeba? What I'm about to tell you is not from a Christian. It's actually from Richard Dawkins, our atheist, Darwinist, evolutionist friend who wrote the book The God Delusion. In previous years, he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins admits that the amount of information in a one-celled amoeba is about equivalent to a 1,000 complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. A 1,000 complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica in an amoeba. How big's an amoeba? Well, let's put it this way. You can put several hundred in, in an inch if you lined them up. And in each one... You've got a 1,000 complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, to believe that that resulted by natural law without intelligence is like believing that the Library of Congress resulted from an explosion in a printing shop. (laughs) I don't have enough faith to believe that. The first life requires intelligent cause. It requires an intelligent cause. In fact, the four-letter genetic alphabet, I don't have time to share this little video, but the the little video says this. The DNA of one human cell equals 5 million pages of information. That's 25,200-page books worth of information in every cell in your body. All of that is crammed into the nucleus of a cell, which is one one-hundredth the width of a human hair. There are 25,200-page books in a cell, the nucleus of which is a hundredth the width of a human hair. And you have about 100 trillion cells. How could the four blind forces of nature create any of this? What are they? There's only, when we talk about natural law, natural law doesn't do anything. Natural law simply describes what the four natural forces do. Anyone know what the four natural forces are? What are they? No, no, no. What? Go ahead. No, no, that's not it. That was, that's what Aristotle thought. You're going wind, fire. No, no, no. Why well, I already mentioned one of them. Gravity's one. Gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Those are the only four natural forces that we know about. The Darwinists, the evolutionists, have to figure out how we could get twenty-five thousand two hundred page books in a cell by those four natural forces. <laughs> They have to figure out how a one-celled amoeba with a thousand complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica came into existence by four natural forces. Gravity, strong and weak nuclear forces, and electromagnetism. How did that happen? And by the way, where did gravity, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and electromagnetism come from? ever think about that? I mean, we talked about you have to believe... You'd have to believe that an explosion in a printing shop created the Library of Congress. Well, the Darwinists can't even explain where the printing shop came from. Right? What caused human life? Let's just do this and we'll finish up. There's a thousand volumes for a one-celled amoeba. How about the human brain? How about the human brain? What I'm about to tell you is from Carl Sagan. You know, Carl Sagan was an agnostic, but he talked like an atheist. And Carl Sagan really thought the only thing that existed was materials. The universe is the only thing that ever was, is, or shall be, right? Very materialistic. And your incredible brain, what's in your incredible brain? Let's take um, an arena like Madison Square Garden, which has nearly 20,000 seats in it. The Bobcats Arena has how many? I don't even know. Close to that, right? Let's suppose you're permitted to go down on the floor, say in Madison Square Garden, before a basketball game or the Bobcats Arena, and there's nobody on the floor, there's nobody in the stands, and you're looking at 20,000 empty seats all around you. How many books would you need to stack on every seat to fit the amount of DNA information in your brain? This is probably an underestimate, but this is from Sagan. You'd have to stack 1,000 books on every seat. Not in every section, but in every seat in every section to fit the amount of information between your ears. As Sagan said, the brain is a very big place in a very small space. So if there's DNA information, there's a message behind take out the garbage mom or a messenger, I should say, behind take out the garbage mom. Think of what must be behind 20 million volumes worth of information. Because there's 20 million volumes worth of information between your ears. A thousand books on every seat in Madison Square Garden. Now, how many saw the movie Contact? Now, you remember the movie Contact? Jodie Foster's in there. And here's the premise of the movie. This, is a real, this was a real program, not just a movie, by the way. SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is an organization or a group that for years was government-funded for a while... ...was scanning the radio waves of space. Why? Because they're looking for evidence of life out there. And there's all sorts of random radio waves flying around space out there. How are they going to know whether one of them is really from intelligence? How would they know? They're going to get a certain pattern, a message... ...something called specified complexity. There's going to be information to it in a certain pattern. It's not going to be random... So Jodie Foster, remember from the movie, she's sitting out on her car, she's got her headsets on, and suddenly she goes, and she runs into the uh, laboratory there. And they're analyzing this radio wave they picked up, and she starts going, those are primes. Those are prime numbers from from 1 to 111. That's got to be intelligence. Before you know it, all the feds converge on her laboratory there. James Woods, who plays uh, Fed, says, how can this be intelligence? Come on. If they're so intelligent, why don't they just speak English? And Jodie Foster says, because math is the only universal language. And she's right. Every alphabet you can reduce to numbers. How did we break the Japanese code in World War II? We reduced the their code that they're sending to numbers. We could figure it out. We could decipher it. Now, they found this message, which was a simple prime number sequence from 1 to 111 or whatever it was. And later they found a bigger message embedded in it, but she knew immediately it was intelligence. And Sagan said this about establishing SETI. He said, if we could just find one message from outer space, it would be worth a great price. And they asked him, well, how long would the message need to be, Carl? And he said, oh, just a sentence or two. That would prove that there is intelligence out there. That would prove that E.T. is out there. Oh, a sentence or two. Well, here's my question. If a sentence or two proves that E.T. is out there, why doesn't 20 million volumes prove that God, the creator, is out there too? I mean, Sagan is inconsistent. On one hand, he says one sentence proves that there's intelligence, but 20 million volumes worth of sentences doesn't? That doesn't make any sense to me. This guy was not a Christian, but he admitted. Sir Fred Hoyle said, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces, forces worth speaking about in nature. Everything seems to be designed. There's an elegance behind our universe. Things are tweaked just right. Why is that?
1: So that was a discussion on the design of life. So for those of you keeping score at home, we have talked about the beginning of the universe. We have talked about the design of the universe. And we have talked about the design of life. Well, we're, we're part way through the gauntlet. We got just a little bit more to go. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to tie back into the moral argument, which we discussed on last episode, but we're going to do it in a very unique fashion. Clearly, you guys know I am a big fan of audiobooks. I listen to a lot of material, and it just so happens that I recently came across an audiobook that just blew my mind. And the title of the book is called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens by Larry Taunton. Now, I have mentioned Christopher Hitchens before on this show. He is a very famous and well-known atheist. He's had many debates, including debates with Frank Turk, who we've just listened to. He's been on all sorts of TV shows, including the Bill Maher show. I mean, as far as atheist goes, he's probably the most famous one of, of them all and a few years ago he passed away of i believe it was throat cancer but i've always said you know christopher hitchin he was a he was a fun guy to listen to very witty very quick to point out shortcomings in a person's view and in general he was he was fun to listen to he he would come across as belligerent at some points i mean even during his debates he would have cigarettes and whiskey So you have this very intelligent man that can communicate in a really powerful way, really good at persuading people, and he was a staunch atheist. So when I came across this book title, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, I was immediately interested in what exactly that meant. Well, it turns out the author of this book, Larry Taunton, was extremely good friends with Christopher Hitchens. It, it wouldn't be a stretch to say they were, they were almost best friends, uh, especially near the end of his life. They spent a lot of time together. They did a lot of traveling together. And what's unusual about that is Larry Taunton is a devout Christian and apologist, which is a defender of the faith. So there was a point in Christopher Hitchens' life where he was basically going on the debate circle, like he would take on anyone willing to debate him. And Larry Taunton ended up being sort of the guy that coordinated all these debates, so he would end up traveling with Christopher Hitchens to these different debate sites here in the United States. And through those travels, they became really good friends. And they spent so much time together that they naturally started to have some of these really, really deep discussions about life. And as it turns out, Christopher Hitchens wasn't as sure about his view as he came off in his books and in debates so this book is about the discussions that Christopher Hitchens and Larry Taunton had together, and, and as a matter of fact, they actually had a Bible study together on one of these road trips, which is which is absolutely mind blowing to me. Now Hitchens has passed away, and I, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything if I tell you that there there never was this deathbed conversion or or anything dramatic like that but there was definitely some major emotional and intellectual conflicts going on and before I play this clip just think back to the the last episode right the own it episode Brussels sprouts right if if you're an atheist and you're talking about morality if you're being honest and if you're being consistent you have to admit that not liking the taste of Brussels sprouts is, a, is the same thing as disliking murder. Like it's, it's all subjective. But Christopher Hitchens had a huge problem with owning that position of atheism. So even though I think the cosmological argument and the design argument are important and need to be addressed, This clip is going to illustrate why I think those don't matter as much as the morality argument. And then there's one other thing I'm going to play after that, and that will complete the gauntlet. But I just want to play this clip for you to get a feel for how conflicted he was. He's so conflicted that he often talked about keeping two sets of books, right? One book for his public image, I guess, is the best way to put it. And then another set of books for just the real intellectual and emotional struggles that this guy had. So the clip actually starts off with a Bible verse that I actually just keep in there more more for me. Because it, it kind of reminds me of discussions with one of my brother who is not a Christian and it basically says a long time or short time I'm going to be around for you to discuss this topic until you come to some sort of resolution and Larry that you know when Larry Taunton wrote this book he realized that his buddy was dying so he he was on a mission to try and answer some of these really really big and really really hard questions with Hitchens uh, and he made some progress, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a decision that Christopher Hitchens himself had to make. And this is just a really fascinating discussion about uh, that journey that Hitchens was on. And he even mentions some other famous atheists like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, which we will discuss afterwards as well. But for now, uh, check this out.
3: Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Acts chapter 26, verses 28 through 29. But Hitchens was also correct in saying that he was more divided than most. His dividedness, however, wasn't all hypocrisy or intellectual posturing. For Hitchens, keeping two sets of books often meant that he had two real aspects of his personality and of his real beliefs that existed in real tension, one that he would reveal to the public and another that he revealed only to certain people. I have already hinted at the deep conflict within him. The conflict was much more than abortion or adopting a pro-war stance in defense of Western ideals. It was a conflict that had much more than religious overtones. It had deep spiritual implications. He wasn't merely the author of a best-selling book. He was out to change the world with his comrades, just as in the heady days of his Vietnam War protests. Christopher Hitchens rides again. Even so, there were signs of fissures. No, of fault lines in his atheistic worldview. Deep into our discussion. Christopher made a passing reference to Princeton bioethicist Peter Singer. Singer is quite possibly the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 20th century and beyond. In 1975, he published Animal Liberation, thus giving rise to the modern animal rights movement. Once when dining with Singer in his hometown of Melbourne, Australia, I listened as he explained his animal rights philosophy. A vegetarian for obvious reasons. He ordered Naki. I ordered kangaroo. I'm not sure what compelled me to do it. Well, maybe I do. He is the most philosophically consistent atheist I have ever met. Dangerously so. Journalist Kevin Toulos writes of him. What is legitimate for Singer is just plain murder for other people. It is Singer's view that man is an animal like any other and that he deserves no special status among the various species. That is, he argues, a residual of Christian thought. Worse, he has argued that parents should get 28 days with a newborn child to determine if they want to keep it or euthanize it. Isn't this where atheism, pushed to its natural outcome, takes you? Perhaps Hitchens wasn't expecting me to know who Singer was. It certainly seems he did not expect me to pursue a discussion about him. What followed was interesting. Me, I don't get the sense that you would seek to airbrush out, as some of the new atheists might, the crimes of the Soviet regimes. C.H., I don't think they do. I think there are people like Peter Singer, for example, who do appear to be, if not relativists, crude utilitarians, perhaps, And though actually, some of the boundaries between us and other animal species are being made fuzzier by discoveries in the genome. Me, but he seems like he's willing to take his atheism to its logical conclusion. CH, yeah, he does. Me, in an alarming way. CH, he does, that's right. Me, does this not alarm you? CH, yes, it does. And it interests me, too. Me. How does it alarm you? C.H. Singer, there's no discipline. There's no faith. There's no atheist dogma that means I have to do what he says so he can't legislate for me. I don't have, we don't have, bishops. We don't have priests. We don't have popes. Me. But do you think Peter Singer is consistent? C.H. Well, there's... He, I think, has relished in forcing people to adopt what he thinks of as consistency. You know, I think of particularly in the question of animal rights and saying to people, by what right would you say that a baby kangaroo had more or less rights than your own daughter? Me. I get the impression that Singer would say effectively, and perhaps you know him personally, C.H., I don't. Me. Me. I get the impression that he would say, Hey, look, Dawkins, Hitchens, these guys want to kick out the foundations of Western civilization, but retain some of the superstructure of a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's no good. We've got to take our atheism all the way to its logical conclusion. You, as an atheist, find that alarming? What is it? C.H. Yes. Me. What alarms you? C.H. The way I'd rather put it, for now, is that I'm aware that, because I've been busy on other fronts, that I have a—I think I have an a postponed sort of reckoning with Mr. Singer at some point that I must get ready to have. I think I must do some more reading and do some more debating with him, and also with some of the other animal rights. I do feel that the others—clear his throat—there's a postponed confrontation that isn't postponable for much longer. I was stunned by this conversation. Again, I remind the listener that this was my first time to meet Christopher Hitchens, and this was not at all what I expected of one of atheism's leading lights. If you're going to lead an atheist movement, then your movement must be about, well, atheism. It must be defined by it. Yet here he was essentially repudiating what logically flows at the most basic level— from an atheistic worldview, that there is no God, and as a consequence, man is no greater value than any other species. This is Atheism 101. When I picked up the thread a few minutes later in the hotel restaurant, Christopher made a fist and held it to his stomach. There is just something in me that is not prepared to equate a child with a piglet. No doubt. That something is called conscience. But this was unambiguous theism, as he well knew. Admitted or not, it was the Judeo-Christian notion that man is made in the image of God, qualitatively different from the other animals, and therefore set atop the created order. Singer would be the first to point out that this view finds no resonance in atheism. To be clear, very few people would equate a child with a piglet, but then again, Very few people are atheist ideologues. This is the ugliness of atheism. To say that there is no God is not a morally neutral statement. It is to say that morality itself is merely an illusion, an artificial human construct with no more validity than the instinctual rules that regulate a colony of ants. As Fyodor Dostoevsky so eloquently put it in The Brothers Karamazov, if there is no immortality... There can be no virtue, and all things are permissible. Ruthless adherence to atheism's logic means exactly that. Many would just chalk this up as yet another display of Hitch the contrarian. But Hitchin's contrarianism wasn't simplistic. One may appear to be a contrarian when he is, in fact, in transition. Neither fully what he was nor fully what he will be. On the one hand, this exchange demonstrates that Christopher had made a moral choice not to equate human life with animal life. On the other, he hadn't yet worked out what that looked like intellectually. You see, in one manifestation of himself, Christopher Hitchens was everything the people in this room thought him to be. A radical leftist, sympathetic Marxist, and militant atheist. But in another, more carefully guarded and secret book, Christopher Hitchens was something altogether different, and therein lies the remarkable plot twist in the tale that is Christopher Hitchens' life. I recall once asking Christopher if man was, in his view, born good or bad. His answer was emphatic, man is unquestionably evil. I had asked that question of other atheists. Richard Dawkins spoke of genetic predispositions. Michael Shermer referred to social conditions. Peter Singer rejected the idea of such moral constructs. None of them had answered the way Hitchens did. They couldn't. At least they couldn't and remained consistent in their atheism. Christopher readily accepted that this was in contradiction to his atheism. He was then midstream of his philosophical transition and hadn't yet worked out the details. There's no denying that at the time of his death, Christopher was, as now, best known for his atheism. And while this defined his public image, an intellectual post-mortem indicates that it is not the key to understanding him. This was, after all, the man who admitted to me that he had never read Richard Dawkins' bestseller, The God Delusion who regarded Sam Harris's utilitarianism a weak and untenable philosophy, and who was disgusted by Peter Singer's advocacy of infanticide.
1: Okay, so that was Christopher Hitchens' take on certain things. He was deeply conflicted, and he was just trying to figure some things out that he knew to be inconsistent within his own view, and he was really struggling with that. And that fact is highlighted when the subject of Peter Singer comes up. Now, Peter Singer is the atheist who thinks that uh, parents should have the right to end the life of their child up to 28 days after birth, basically infanticide. I have no idea why 28 days is a magic number, but anyway, he feels that parents should be able to basically kill their children. So Larry Taunton asks Christopher Hitchens about Peter Singer, and he says, hey, do you think Peter Singer is consistent? And you'll notice how, as Larry recounts the story, Christopher Hitchens stutters and fumbles for his words for a little bit. And, And I just want you to remember what what a tell that is. It's sort of a, a lead indicator that someone is a little unsure of their position. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a little bit. But for now, I want to I mention one other thing that was talked about in that clip we just listened to. And that is some of the names of the other atheists that were mentioned in that clip. Uh, there's I guess there's four really famous atheists. Atheists right now that have uh, that sell a lot of books and in are relatively famous in regards to these type of topics. And, and those four people are one obviously Christopher Hitchens who we've been talking about. The other is Richard Dawkins. Daniel Dennett is another one who who we haven't mentioned yet, but he's another one just to kind of be aware of. And, and the final one is Sam Harris. And Sam Harris was actually mentioned in this past clip by Christopher Hitchens. Now, what is Hitchens' assessment of some of these people that are supposedly on his team? Well, he hasn't even read Richard Dawkins' books. I I don't know what that says about his opinion about Dawkins. But he did mention Sam Harris. And one of the comments that was mentioned about Sam Harris is that his views were untenable. Now, I know you guys probably know what that means, but I'm going to give you the... Dictionary definition of untenable to drive home a point here. Okay, so untenable is having a view or position that is not able to be maintained or defended against attack or objection. Some of the synonyms for untenable are indefensible, unsustainable, unjustified, shaky, weak, and flimsy right so if you if you think of in terms of evidence and you're being described as flimsy that's probably a good sign that what you have is a very very bad position and you should consider changing it now why do i say all this well you think about all the arguments for and against god and i think some of the arguments are are pretty powerful right the the beginning of the universe The design argument, those seem to resonate with me, but for others, they don't. And that's why I almost think as powerful as they are, I mean, they're a good start, but for whatever reason, (laughs) they're not enough sometimes to put people over the edge to make a, I don't know, an informed decision, right? But things like the moral argument where you actually have to say, yeah, the you know, murder and Brussels sprouts, those are, are basically the same thing. Disliking those. It's there's really no difference. Yeah, you should be able to murder children that are twenty seven days old and, and that should be fine and socially acceptable. Like those are the things that people don't even want to address those type of questions. But there's one that I think is even more glaring than that, and I had given this a lot of thought. So just to put this in context, I want to tell you about a book, okay? It's written by Sam Harris, and the title of the book is called Free Will. And he basically goes into a description of how free will is an illusion, right? So let me read one of the editorial reviews on this book, okay? Here it is. Free will is an illusion so convincing that people simply refuse to believe that we don't have it. In free will, Sam Harris combines neuroscience and psychology to lay this illusion to rest at last. Like all of his books, this one will not only unsettle you, but make you think deeply. And here's the kicker. It says, read it. You have no choice. And that's by... Jerry Cohn, Professor of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Chicago. Now now think about that. That is I mean <laughs> I don't even know where to start. It seems so like glaringly obvious to me that people have free will and they have the ability to choose to do things. And look at this, even in this, this review, it said, read it, you have no choice. Kind of like it was a joke, but the joke is on the view, right? The joke is on the fact that that is untenable. You're literally saying that you have no choice to read this book. You are literally saying that Sam Harris had no choice but to write the book about having no choice. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just so crazy to me. So I I thought about that. And that seemed so outlandish to me to the point where I thought I did not understand what Sam Harris and atheists, again, if they're being consistent, are trying to communicate with this free will. Do they really think that free will doesn't exist and that free will is an illusion? So I was so twisted up about this that I actually called Greg Kokel up. You know, he's got this radio show and I called and I got through to him, and this was the topic I discussed with him. And I saved that phone call. So I'm going to play that phone call for you right now. And then after that, we're going to close up, and I'm going to run you through the gauntlet and tell you exactly what I mean by the gauntlet. But this is the final touch to uh, this episode. And, and I think, to me, it's, it's the most important, because to deny free will it seems like you would have to use free will to deny free will. But check out this call, and we'll close up things after that.
0: Let's go to uh, Brownsburg, Indiana.
4: Hey, Greg. How you doing, sir?
0: Good. Dude, glad you called.
4: Hey, thank you. Yeah, I've got a question it has been on my mind for a while. I've heard it come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure i got my facts straight because I don't want to create a straw man or anything like sure. that. And I know uh, Sam Harrison wrote a book on uh, free will, but...
0: Sam Harris, right, the new atheist.
4: Sam Sam Harris, Yeah, sorry. Um, So my question is, if the atheist is being intellectually honest, are they forced to deny free will or say it's an illusion or something to that effect? And if so, why is that exactly the case?
0: Yeah, I think that they would be forced by the logic of their worldview to uh, affirm, to affirm um um determinism now i'm chuckling here a little bit because there's a there's a catch-22 in this for them because if determinism is true then they're only affirming determinism because they've been determined to do so not because there are intellectual merits to determinism as a view you would not if determinism were true you would not be able to weigh the merits of any point of view Okay, But I don't see how their view escapes the charge uh, for this reason. Um, atheists, almost universally—now, there can be some exceptions to this, but almost universally, that is, virtually every atheist that you'll run into is going to be a materialist. Right. That is, they believe—and this is the case for all of the new atheists um, and those like them— that, that is, they believe that there is the, the only thing that exists is the physical world governed by natural laws. So material stuff is real. That's it. Immaterial stuff is not real. Um, right. It's all physical, governed by natural laws. And that's why this view is called either var- variously materialism, physicalism, or um, uh, naturalism. Okay, all right, let's just say that that's the case. Now, what does such a world look like? Well, in that kind of world, there there are only molecules in motion. And what governs the motion of the molecules? Well, natural laws. Therefore, any particular event that takes place is the result of some prior event that caused it. So dominoes, just think of dominoes falling.
4: I was thinking pinball machine. Thinking. Okay. There's a,
0: well, the problem with pinball machines is you've got somebody that's pulling the pulling the spring bob, uh, that's okay. firing the pinball yeah. out. Okay. So you have an agent that's making a decision. Okay. Okay. But but purely physical things are not agents. They are just objects. Right. And if objects respond when another object hits it, it doesn't choose to respond, It responds by virtue of physical necessity. You have one domino fall against the other. The force of the first domino causes the second domino to fall. The second domino doesn't choose. It is an event causation. Its falling is caused by a prior event, and it is an event that causes another event, the domino, after it to fall. So just think of falling dominoes. No choice is there. Now, if the universe is... Completely, if, if, if you can exhaust your description of reality by physical descriptions of physical things operating by natural law, there is no place in that world for acts of freedom. Okay. Because acts of freedom are done by an agent, and an agent is a conscious entity that is capable of initiating a causal chain.
4: It, so if that's true, would would it literally, Sam Harris had no choice to write his book on free will? That's right. That, okay. Yes, uh, and I mean, yes, like and I mean literally,
0: literally, literally. If he is physically determined, he is not choosing anything. Okay. And in fact, I have an article here, uh, or a portion of it, about three years ago, um, Richard, not Richard Dawkins, but Stephen Hawking and um, his, his uh, co-author Milodnov, I can't remember his first name, I'm looking for it, um, mm-hmm. wrote a book called uh, The Grand Design. And The Grand Design is uh, an explanation of everything, basically. And their point in their book, The Grand Design, is that there is no grand design, that physics is everything, and we are all determined. Right uh um, that's one of their points at least and so i actually have a portion of this in front of me and uh, and i i take time to explain how if physics is everything one has to ask the question what uh did the laws of physics determine the order of the words on the pages of the book the grand design
4: right <laughs>
0: um because if physics is not everything then that would have to be the case but I suspect right. that Professors Hawking and Mildenau, uh pondered the evidence for their theories, considered the implications of the facts, they posited their conclusions, then chose the right words and selected the precise order that would best communicate their views and persuade right. readers of the rationality of their point. Notice all of those words I emphasized all require a choice. Right. But if physics is everything, there is no choice. So there's a massive contradiction here.
4: Yeah, it seems pretty glaring, and it, it seems in my experience that not many atheists are aware of that shortcoming of their view. And
0: uh, this is a fair thing to ask of an atheist. If atheism is true, and, and this is where you may need to ask a, uh, an information question at the front end right. of your conversation, right. what kind of atheist are you? Are you a materialistic right. atheist? That okay, is so what a, are
4: the choices there: materialistic and what else? Well, Whatever. you
0: could be you could be a dualist atheist. That is, you could believe okay. in the material world and the immaterial world, or you could be a uh, you could be a monist. That that is, you believe only in the immaterial world and not in the physical world. That the physical world is an illusion. You could be a, okay. kind of a uh, I don't know, Platonistic atheist or something like that. But those are the options. Um, most atheists okay. are are materialists. Right. Um, the, all, all an atheist require atheist atheism is and there's confusion on this unfortunately means right. b- a belief that there is no god. It's the rejection of the idea that God exists. It's affirming the proposition God okay. does not yeah. exist. Okay? Yeah. okay, so you yeah. could affirm that in three di- with three different views of reality, but generally right. it's. It, it is not a dualist view, and it isn't a view that only immaterial things exist. Um right. It's rather a materialist point of view. But you could clarify that, and it will show that you know a little bit about atheism. Maybe even more right. than the atheist knows that there's different varieties.
4: So all the all the new atheists are materialists Yes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And as far as I can tell. Popular. Well, yeah, yeah, and then most of the popular culture reads their books. Yeah, and so that's why I think it's safe
0: to assume that. But then once once that is – then you get clear on that, then fine. Then you could say, okay, so nothing but physical things exist. Okay, causes are what? Agent – they're event causations. They're molecules banging against each other, right? Okay, now how do you account for free will?
4: Right.
0: In that scenario.
4: So they have no choice. (laughs) Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, something like that. I think they're okay. stuck, and this is why people like Sam Harris are going to have to bite the bullet and say, "Yeah, I guess well, I'm a I'm a I'm a determinist okay. uh, because I don't see the any other option that you have."
4: Okay. No. No. Thank you. That's fair enough. It just seems so glaring. I, don't, I mean, Yes, I think so. I mean,
0: and if a okay. determinist, by the way, if there is no free will, I don't know where you get morality. But he has a book that I just bought a couple of weeks ago because I'm writing an article that is answering some things in that book. Um, right. And his book is on morality from an atheistic perspective, even though you're a determinist. How can you have <laughs> determinism and morality? Because doesn't right and wrong entail a, a, some some sense of freedom in order to be held responsible?
4: Yeah, no, that's the contradictions are pretty thick. So. I
0: think you're right. I think they are. Okay. All right, Steve. I
4: appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate your call.
1: Okay, so there you go. Hopefully that made a little bit of sense as to why an atheist has to deny free will. Basically, if we are just physical bodies, kind of like a physical machine... Those things, uh, machines cannot make choices. they just react to circumstances and uh, external stimuli, I guess you'd put it. Whereas if decisions are are being made, uh, then you start to talk about it's it's called mind, body duality. So there's a difference between a brain, which is the physical thing, and the mind, which is you know something immaterial, you know, when people say what's on your mind, Um, They're not talking about what synapses are firing in your brain. So the mind sounds an awful lot like the soul. And that's the path the atheist is not allowed to go down because the soul is definitely an immaterial thing. And if only material things exist, then it can't be possible for a soul to exist. I know that's a roundabout way, but, but the result of that is the atheist needs to hold a view where free will doesn't exist. Well, since free will seems to exist everywhere, I mean, people are making decisions all the time, the atheist has to explain this apparent free will. Well, what is the go-to explanation? Well, free will is an illusion. And hence, that's why people like Sam Harris have to write entire books to explain that concept uh, they're basically trying to answer an objection to atheism. Namely, if atheism is true, how do you explain this free will stuff? So that question, is free will real or is it an illusion? That is, to me, that's one of the last questions in what I have been calling the gauntlet. So we are going to run the gauntlet. And I'm I'm going to actually explain a little bit more why I've been saying that. I guess I should make that a little more clear since I've referenced it several times. So a gauntlet is basically an armored glove that was worn in medieval times. And to signify a battle or a fight, a knight would take off that glove and throw it on the ground. And that was basically just saying, hey, it's game on. This about to go down. There's also a more modern connotation to that, and it's called running the gauntlet. And that's basically where there's two parallel rows of soldiers that face each other. And then someone runs through that row. And as they're running through that row, the soldiers on each side of him are attacking him. And this was actually a form of punishment. Sometimes it was considered a rite of passage. But for the most part, if you're running the gauntlet, you're going to get beat up. So metaphorically, I'm calling this running the atheist gauntlet, because if you're going to be an atheist, you have to accept certain things. And we sort of hinted on this a little bit last episode, you know, with owning your view and realizing the shortcomings. Well, this is an extension of it, but these are just back to back to back to back questions. And you'll notice the response is, is eerily the same, or I would say suspiciously the same each time. Now, I'd like to, to think I've already run the theist gauntlet, right? I've, I've gone through some of the challenges, and they seem pretty daunting. But after I run through them, I was like, ah, oh, you know, that's, that wasn't so bad. The, the biggest challenge of which is why would a good God allow evil to exist? And we actually talked about that on last episode. And I think not only can that question be answered, but it's actually strong evidence for the existence of God. So I think I've run the gauntlet on the other side. And now the atheist, if he's going to run through this gauntlet, these are the things that he has to deal with and <laughs> kind of the the punishment that he has to take. So this is what it looks like for an atheist to run through the gauntlet. All right. Yeah. See, it's all over for you. See? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here you go. Here are the questions in order through the gauntlet that I think you have to run if you're an atheist. Is the universe designed? Yes or no? The answer from the atheist is, it appears to be a design, but it just has the, wait for it, it just has the illusion of design. Question number two, is life designed? Here's the answer again. Well, it appears to be designed, but it just has the illusion of design. It can easily be explained by things like gravity and the strong and weak nuclear force. Is morality real or not? And this is the one that tripped up Christopher Hitchens. But the answer is morality is just an illusion. I mean, that's what the consistent atheist has to say. Like you think you're just doing right and wrong, but really it's just a social construct. We've agreed upon what is right and wrong. And you're either adhering to that socially acceptable thing or you're not. And this is basically what the entire last episode was about and just how crazy that is. But again, notice it. Morality is an illusion. Question number four. Is free will a bona fide real thing or is it just illusion? And again, the answer by the atheist is, free will is just an illusion. And I can even throw in the question, is consciousness an illusion? And at some point, I'm just I'm just beating a dead horse because the same answer is given. But let me play this 10-second clip just to confirm that, yes, even consciousness, like being aware of yourself, that's just an illusion. And Here's straight from the horse's mouth, here is, is Sam Harris talking about this.
3: I'm not arguing that consciousness is a reality beyond science or beyond the brain or, or the, that it's, it floats free of the brain at death. I'm not, I'm not making any spooky claims about its, its metaphysics. Uh, what I am saying, however, is that uh, the self is an illusion, the sense of being an ego, an I, a thinker of thoughts in addition to the thought. So there you go.
1: Being a thinker of thoughts and even being aware. That's that's just an illusion. So that's the gauntlet, or that's what I'm calling the gauntlet. Uh, again, these aren't just small questions. And I, I want you to to realize the difference between a, a difficulty of holding a certain view. Like, oh, you know, man, I that's, that's hard to explain. I, I don't know. Like, that's kind of like a chink in the armor. Um, so there's a difference between having a difficulty and having a defeater. Like... This just doesn't make sense. Like this will actually kill a view. And, and I think there's, I mean, going through this atheist gauntlet, there's, there's five things. But the last two in particular, I mean, those are, to me, those are death blows. So the things that you have to admit to be consistent in your atheist, and, and that's the key. I mean, most people don't think about that. There's, they're completely inconsistent, um, but they're pretty big, right? You have to say the design of the universe is an illusion, the design of life is an illusion morality you know basic right and wrong guess what that's that's also an illusion free will making decisions whether <laughs> that's a big decision or a small decision like brushing your teeth like you didn't decide to do that it feels like you did but it's just an illusion and then finally consciousness that's also an illusion like a, how, like if it's all an illusion like how would you even know that it's an illusion. It just seems so counterintuitive. So why did I run you through this five-question gauntlet? Well, a, a few reasons. I mean, if, if you're an atheist, I want you to at least know the shortcomings. I want you to own it, right? I want you to own those shortcomings and at least admit that you agree that all of these things are an illusion. I think a lot of people have stereotypes about people that believe in God. You know, They're not that smart. They, they don't think things through too much. Or they kind of use just blind faith. But at the very least, <laughs> I hope now you realize that there are a lot of good reasons to be a theist, right? To be a Christian, to be someone that believes in a monotheistic God. A lot of evidence points that way. I mean, at least you see that us religious folks have some really, really good reasons to believe what we believe. And you atheists might not be <laughs> as on solid ground as you may have thought. So just ponder those questions. I think I think, um, I think you, you saw how difficult those questions were for, uh, I, I mean, an intellectual giant like Christopher Hitchens, how he wrestled with those things. And, and honestly, he never resolved those things. And these aren't small questions, right? I, I think how someone answers these questions can have literally eternal ramifications. But if you're interested in that subject, you can you can stick around for the extra credit. But but I just wanted to wrap up this show, you know, and I would just ask you to consider some of those questions and ask yourself if they truly make sense and if that's the the side of this debate you want to uh cast your ballot, so to speak. So anyway, I hope you guys got a lot to think about on this episode. And we will for sure catch you next time. You know, we only have another, maybe just another couple episodes on level four, and then we will be at the top of the pyramid. So um, we'll see what happens from there. But until next time, take care. We'll see you around.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until
3: next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.
1: There's nothing wrong with your mobile device.
3: You're venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for extra credit. Extra credit. All
1: right, boys and girls, welcome to extra credit. Uh, I got some really cool things lined up for you, which basically consist of three individual phone conversations that Greg Kokel has with Ian, Ian the Atheist basically, uh, played one of them last week, uh, now there's there's three other ones, one, actually they all, three of these phone calls slash questions uh, that Greg Kokel fields, they they all tie into this episode pretty nicely. At the tail end of, of my show here, I mentioned the eternal consequences, and and yes, I was referring to hell, and I know... That's kind of a sticky topic, and people um, people come up with all kind of images, and it's got to be fake because you're thinking devil with a pitchfork kind of thing, and uh, you probably want to shelf those for a little bit, and this is just, a, an I don't know, it's a super fascinating conversation between uh, Greg Kokel and this atheist named Ian, and they talk pretty candidly about this subject and... There's about three or four other things, like really hard topics that come up that uh, I think are, are answered pretty pretty masterfully and um, just just really insightful on the part of Greg Kokel. And then later on, Ian and Greg uh, talk about uh, the cosmological argument and whether that's a convincing argument or not. And that's a pretty fascinating conversation as well. And then there's sort of another tie-in to that one so three phone calls back to back and i don't know i i found these phone calls just really really fascinating so um some good extra credit for you enjoy here they are all right let's
0: go to the phones and uh this is ian in uh gainesville florida ian welcome to the show glad to to have you on board first off
5: thank you very much good afternoon afternoon. Uh, congratulations on 18 years thank you very much ian have you have you called in before Yes, sir. I called him about a month ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. Melinda said she thought you had. Well, welcome back.
5: Thank you very much. Um, so uh, let me start by saying that I, I appreciate that, uh, even though that you and I may disagree on on certain issues, that we, we can have a, a polite discussion and sure. kind of air those grievances out. And I have a challenge for you. Okay. All right. Are you ready for a challenge?
0: <laughs> That's why I'm on the air, sir. All
5: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so the concept of hell makes absolutely no sense to me. Right. Uh So just so that we're both on the same page, I would like to start by asking you the question, who goes to hell?
0: People who deserve it. <laughs>
5: um,
0: okay. I mean, do you want me to say more? I don't mean to be glib. I'm I'm trying to be terse, though, because I know you're giving me the challenge, so I'm being careful right. about how I respond. And uh, I, the, the answer like is... Okay, hell is a place where justice is ultimately accomplished. Okay, that those who 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 do wrong by in rebellion against the sovereign of the universe uh, are banished forever from his presence.
5: Okay, um, would a person that so only through belief in jesus is someone redeemed from hell do i have that understanding correct
0: yeah they do you do but i i have to add something because okay. just saying that much it kind of leaves a false impression a pardon is offered by the sovereign for all the crimes committed against him and it is made possible through what he did actually by becoming a man himself and taking the punishment on himself that we deserve Mm -hmm. we can either accept the pardon and therefore receive clemency or we can deny the pardon and then stand in the dock as guilty and pay the penalty ourselves. that's the choice okay
5: but it's it's a it's a cognitive decision you know people choose to be pardoned and and if they, if they accept that, if they uh, allow for that, that pardon, if they you know prostrate themselves and accept Jesus, then, exactly. then they'll...
0: Yes, that, that's kind of different ways of putting it, accept Jesus. But essentially it is it is to trust in the provision that God has made through the person of Jesus. And so that's a way of accepting the pardon. It's believing in it. And what I mean believing here, you probably know from listening before, I don't mean just men- and mental assent, though certainly that is part of it. You have to believe that Jesus is able to save you. before you believe in him to save you. It's kind of like when I I just got off a plane yesterday, and so I I believed that the plane could bring me here, but I didn't exercise trust or belief in it, in a certain sense, until I got on the plane. And so, yes, that's what's necessary. One has to put their trust in Christ and bend their knee, and that's what prostrate, prostrate themselves before God after fashion. I think you're right about that. There's a humility that's involved, and if they don't do that, then they receive what they have coming to them.
5: Okay, so people that, are, that have not been exposed to Christianity or people that are, are mentally incapable of accepting Christianity, what happens to those people?
0: Well, let's take the second case first. Um, okay. A person who is mentally incapable, um, I would take to be someone who does not have the appropriate moral machinery to even distinguish between good and bad and therefore they would not have any crimes against god because they are not developmentally capable of even uh, a rebelling against him in that way so if we're talking about somebody who is genuinely mentally incapable of knowing the difference between good and bad then they are not held responsible for that and that might be because they have a congenital defect and even as an adult they can't do that or it might be because they die because they're, before they're even old enough to be able to uh, to make that kind of distinction. So I don't, my conviction is God is not going to hold somebody responsible for for conduct that they had, that they, they, they are developmentally incapable of knowing was immoral. Um, however, those who are capable of doing that, they are going to be held accountable for their behaviors and 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 you just asked then the second part of the question about what are the about those who never heard and my response is going to be that those people are going to be judged by god justly according to their behaviors. And this is why I want to just slip something in that you may not have heard me say before, but I think it is meant to correct a misconception that some people have, including Christians, that people do not go to hell because they did not believe in Jesus. That would be like saying somebody died because he didn't go to the doctor people die because a disease kills them, which might have been prevented had they gone to the doctor. In the case of spiritual disease, people are judged because of their rebellion against God. Now, it might have been the case that they were saved from that by accepting the pardon that Jesus offers, but if they don't hear about the pardon, the grounds upon which they are judged is still their violation of God's law, and therefore God is still just in judging them, even if they never hear about a pardon, as long as they're guilty. Does that make sense to you?
5: Um, Okay, well, I'll accept that premise, but if, if people don't hear about Christianity, then they don't know about God's law, and if they don't know about God's law, then they're still being judged according to a rubric that they, they didn't know
0: about. Right, I mean, yeah, I, wouldn't, did I understand you. Yeah, that part you got wrong. I we, I actually didn't specifically address a portion okay. of what you just said. People don't know about God's law by hearing about Christianity people already know right and wrong because the law has been written in their hearts. Uh, I get two proofs for this. One is scriptural. In other words, that this is the scriptural teaching. You'll find it in Romans chapter 2. But Paul is just saying something that's obvious. Uh, That is that all human beings know the difference between right and wrong and this is why they act out uh, moral behavior, concepts of right and wrong that are very similar across cultures, even though there's some variations. So people know right from wrong and in that sense same book, Romans chapter 1, Paul is making it clear that even if they don't have any special message about Jesus, they know from all that's been created that there is a God and that he's a, he, there's a certain and that and that, that wrong is wrong and right is right, but instead of responding to that, they suppress that truth and then they do it because they want to live out their own autonomous uh, ways, which turn out in most cases to be evil, and he chronicles that a little bit there. But So it isn't so much that people are operating in totally ignorance of God. It's what they they want to do their own thing, and they go ahead and do that because they know the difference of right and wrong, but they choose to do what's wrong, and for that okay. they're guilty.
5: So, but the way that internal conflict between individuals happens to be, however you want to describe it, uh, the that people have a tendency of of committing sinful acts. Um, and, and by themselves. Yes, yeah, so I that think
0: that's quantifiable, regardless of your religious p- point of view.
5: Sure, uh, and that the only real way that you can be absolved of those sins is through belief in Jesus. Correct. Or okay.
0: Yeah. So put trusting in. Yes, exactly. So, so a person who never heard doesn't have an opportunity to get a pardon. Is
5: right. Yes, you're right.
0: So, yes, that's so, true
5: so this is this is where I I I have issue with hell mm-hmm. because if people that that have never heard about Jesus uh they're effectively doomed to hell just given how human nature works out. Uh they're gonna they're going to sin, you know, Jesus said, Let he who for that sin cast a person knowing ahead of time, <laughs> hey everyone here in this
0: crowd. Mm-hmm. That's right. So That's right. So it's, it's not fair.
5: <laughs> it, it's it's a rigged game. It shows it's me as, as a rigged game.
0: Well, it's it, it's it's not a rigged game in one sense. People are doing what they choose to do, mm-hmm. and what they choose to do is to do wrong, and then they are punished for what they do wrong. Even in our own culture, we face the same thing. Leave God aside for a moment. People do bad things because they choose to do bad things, and okay. and we and we deem it appropriate to punish them for the bad things that they do, even if they have no opportunity for pardon. So when you look at the spiritual side, the same thing is being played out there, except for a pardon is made available. And I I realize that, on the one hand, that it seems unfair. And, And I would have to agree that it is unfair. It is unfair to the people who get forgiven because the people who get forgiven do not deserve to get forgiven. They deserve punishment. People who get punishment get exactly what they have coming to them, no more, no less. People who get forgiven do not get what they have coming uh, to them. They get the largess of God on their behalf, which he is able, certainly, to give as he wants. He doesn't he is not obliged to forgive everyone. He can he can meet out his grace the way he wants. What he can't do is he can't punish the innocent. And that would be the case of somebody who really couldn't understand morality to begin with.
5: So why I say it, it sounds to me like a, a great game is that uh, because of uh, geographical and, and cultural kind of uh, effects and uh, only a certain group of the world's population has ever heard about Jesus, and so everyone else is kind of relegated to hell. Doing. Yeah,
0: I, I don't think it works quite like that, but I can see how it'll look that way to you. Here's what I'd want to say, and, I, and I've mm-hmm. got not only, I could point out biblical examples of this, but I could sh- have real life, uh, I should say not real life, but I mean contemporary because I think biblical examples are real life from their time, but contemporary examples of people who are in very um, in very uh, isolated circumstances who genuinely turn to the true God with a repentant heart and god just you know pretty much moved heaven and earth to get the message to them against all odds so i my view is and i think i can defend this from scripture as being a sound view but just so you you understand my view my view is that anybody in these circumstances who is not willing to continue in their active rebellion against god either through false religion or whatever it happens to be, but is willing to find to turn to the true God in repentance from their own sin, God will get the message that they need to bring their healing. They will not be left out of heaven just through an accident of geography.
5: Okay. Um, uh,
0: but most people are not going to do that, because most people want to do their own thing.
5: Um, well... Let's, I think I've made a, a decent point on, on that regard, and getting, I'd like to get into kind of the statistics of hell, if I sure, could. Sure,
0: yeah. Uh, let me, if I could just throw in something, I'll let you jump in sure. then, and that is that your, your main complaint is hell doesn't make sense, and my main response to that is to say it makes perfect sense as a place in which justice is accomplished. And the only hitch in that regard is that some people don't receive justice, they, they receive mercy, according to the kind intention of God Will okay, uh, but there I, is certainly a continuity there.
5: That that sounds that sounds nice. I, I, I like that. <laughs> so do That's I. Right um, okay, so for uh, for how long is someone sent to hell?
0: They're banished from God's presence forever.
5: Forever. Okay. So do you know what a, a mole is in chemistry terms?
0: Uh yeah, it's a uh, Avogadro's number thing, right? right. Yeah. Right. I, I I mean I can't tell you any more than that, but I'm just digging back into to uh j- junior year of high school in chemistry. <laughs> it's 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 the amount of, of of molecules that can fit into a uh what? something. What is that?
5: Right. It's it's the amount of stuff that's there. It's the number of molecules uh to make the math work out uh of units of weight so
4: yeah okay uh, yeah
0: so it's a lot of molecules that's a, a lot, lot of molecules. molecules right okay and that so relates
5: 6.02 times 10 to the
0: 23rd, 23rd. there I, gee you know if you started with the six and paused i could have given you the rest of it 6.02 th- times 10 to the 23rd there you go okay, okay. So, okay. so
5: that's a finite okay. number yes like it's a really big finite number yes. but that's, that's still a finite number yeah right it's infinitely so,
0: small compared to eternity though or an exactly. infinite number yes that's correct
5: so the, so, to put it into context, um, a a a mole of water weighs 18 grams. Okay. Uh, someone that weighs, uh, a person that weighs
4: 180
5: pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, it's about 80 uh, kilograms. It's uh, right. right. And if, the, if someone is 80% water, uh, you're looking at someone is made up of over 36,000, mm-hmm. sorry, 3,600 mm-hmm. moles of water. Sure.
0: Okay, so okay. what we're getting at is the propriety of eternal punishment for a temporal yeah. crime.
5: Yeah. 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 We, right. we have a finite amount of time here. On Earth, and That's You're talking right. about eternal punishment That's right. for a finite crime. That's right. Well,
0: well, it's not a finite crime. What you—it is a finite amount of time that we have. In other words, there are discrete discrete moments of time in which the crime is committed. Whether the crime is a finite crime is another issue. I mean, that's almost borders on a category error. But let me let me try to explain my response to this challenge, Uh, and it'll just give you something to think about. And we can maybe talk at another time when you call back, and we'll pick up the conversation. But but let's end with this particular thought, and that is that. Um, as I've explained when people have raised this before, I ask them, um, what, what do you think is an appropriate punishment for murder? And some will say capital punishment and others will say life imprisonment, but it's it's a big punishment. Mm-hmm. But even if you take the lesser life imprisonment, I ask, how, does it long, how long does it take to kill somebody? Well, it takes a split, split second to pull a trigger. So it, it, you don't really figure out the amount of punishment for the crime based on the amount of time it took to commit the crime. There's a, a disjuncture there. They're unrelated because the gravity, the moral gravity of a crime is unrelated to the time it took to perform the crime. So um, if we think in this way, I've got a temporal act, that is an act that happened in time for a duration of time, for which I'm paying for a non-duration, that is an eternal amount. That seems to be an inequity. But the but the real issue is, what is the nature of the crime and the gravity it, the moral gravity of the crime itself unrelated to how much time it took uh to um uh, to, to perform it and so if my if my daughters you know said something nasty to each other well that would be bad but if my daughter said the exact same nasty thing to me uh, would you agree that it would be worse
5: uh I, I, I would say I'm a, a moral relativist, so I think everything's okay. All right. All right. So
0: <laughs> then you would again. not. So so the fact that that you're you if you have a, a, a seven year old for a seven year old to slap your schnauzer, or the same seven year old to slap you, this is exactly the same kind of act on your view. I guess it would you'd have to say yes since you're a relativist. There's no moral quality to either of those acts, right? Right. So, oh. so okay. Uh, well, well, then, then I, I, then I'm not going to be. What it's, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer that's satisfying. And what's right. curious about your question is, your question implies a basic injustice in the amount of punishment that's given in hell. But you are a guy who doesn't believe in the notion of justice as a moral good to begin with. Well, so your question, are you just asking me in, in light of my point of view? But certainly not in light of your point of view, because you don't believe in justice to begin with. So. <laughs> Eternal. I mean, as a moral good. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you just told me you're a relativist.
5: Right. And justice is a moral good. I, I, I think this conversation is going to carry over onto another break. Well, we'll
0: ha- maybe. Well, we'll just probably. Actually, I think I'm way over time as it is. But why don't you make your your parting comment here, and then we'll we'll pick it up in another time. How's that sound?
5: All right. That that sounds great. Um, so the reason why I called, uh, I, I think this gets to the question of your question. You you stated before that uh, uh, opinions uh, and that that philosophy matter. Uh, viewpoints matter. I-
0: ideas matter. That's correct.
5: Right. I- ideas matter. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I, I, in my understanding of morality, uh, that is is self constructed. Um, I want to see everyone treated fairly because that kind of that makes sense in in my mind. And you sure, okay, it, it's I got flavored you, Ian. by, you know, uh, divine insight or however you want to call it. But sure,
0: I, well, it would I be like you because you're subjectivist. So that's that's your view. Okay, I got it. Right. Fair enough. Um, you want everybody to feel better, So you're, you're emotionally troubled that somebody would have a different view than you do on the right. one hand. Yet on the other hand, you're a relativist, which means intellectually you're acknowledging an equal value to other people's view. So it sounds to me like you're acting a little bit like a, an objectivist when it comes to morality because other people are not acknowledging that you care about your little moral equation when they have their own moral equation. So well, does that make sense not. what I'm saying?
5: And that makes sense. What you're saying, but that's not really what I'm what I'm getting at. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm. Communicating to you uh, in in the language that you understand. If I was going to have a this conversation with another moral relativist, like we'd have a use entirely different language. Well,
0: you wouldn't have a language. You would not have (laughs) a conversation like this with another moral relativist unless you're just reporting autobiography. That's like saying, you know, I like uh, chocolate ice cream, and uh, the other person said, yeah, well, I like chocolate eclairs, you know, uh, or uh, rutabagas or something, and that's all you'd be doing is reporting. Okay.
5: So. your actions your ideas and and what you're spreading uh i i take moral issue with that and so it
0: yeah from within I'm, your system
5: i if i can do things to help the people around me which is uh say that it's okay for you to be gay, say that you know it 's okay for you to live with the best intention that you have, and if mm-hmm. you happen to not believe in a particular deity that's sure. cool too as long as as long as you' you're functioning well within the society sure i'm i 'm cool with it
0: yeah and that 's interesting autobiography you 're sharing with us but I, <laughs> but you 're not giving anybody any reason to take anything that you 've said at all seriously, you know why should anybody else? Care what you like and what you dislike. Okay, so what I'm going to do here, Ian, I, I guess yep. I I got the last word on you here, but but you got a, you got a good closing comment. So let's just leave it at there, and we'll pick it up from there in the future. Is that all right?
5: That sounds great. Thank okay, you very much.
0: It's a pleasure talking to you.
5: And you. All right. Have thanks. Nice Bye. Yeah, good.
0: and uh we got to run to break here. Back with more here on Stand to Reason. Hello, Ian. Welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I feel honored you went to break early, so you and I could talk uh,
0: about <laughs> that. Well, we, so we, I have to say that we have, I think, genial and interesting conversations, and uh, so I thought I'd just... because uh, you have thoughtful challenges as an atheist, and I, so would you can still consider yourself an atheist?
5: Yes, in fact, we're going to talk about that in All right, a so...
0: and you said last week that I made you sad. Was that you last week that... Yes, sir. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I hope you're feeling better.
5: <laughs> I, well, I'm feeling better this week, and I got it was just going to be a regular lazy Sunday, and then I had to go and turn on the internet. Oh
0: screen, and boy, man, I just ruined your day. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> Into the conversation. Okay. Uh, so I was I was watching some of the the lectures that you had uh, of you on that happened to be on the internet. There's like a, a number of things on mm-hmm. YouTube of you giving lectures. Right. Um. And you presented probably the most compelling argument that I've heard, not, I mean, you were reciting it, it's it's an old argument, the the cosmological argument for the existence of of God. Right. You know, the universe is here, what's up with that?
0: Um, Yeah, that's a a, a very a very simplistic way of putting it, but that's all right, I can go with that. Yeah, what's up with that? Um, Uh, Why is something here rather than nothing here? How how does one explain the existence of the universe as an effect, by the way? That's really a key part here, as an effect, because all effects have causes, and the coming into existence of the universe is an effect. So the question is, what is the cause of that?
5: The cosmological argument is probably the most compelling argument that I've heard for the existence of God.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, I think it is a very powerful argument, and it's powerful in virtue of its simplicity, even though cosmological sounds like complicated. It's basically a Big Bang needs a Big Banger,
5: <laughs> to right. put
0: it simply. Well, simpler. all these
5: things they have names, and, you know, it's nice to be able to parse them out. Yeah. Um, so my question then is, okay, the universe is here. What's up with that? How do we go from we need a first cause to... Uh, the God of the Old and then New Testament. I mean, because it, to me, it seems like we're a couple steps removed from there. Is there is a big banger, whatever that is, however you want to interpret that, right. to getting to the Bible of the Old Testament and then the New Testament.
0: Yeah, well, the co- okay, the good question. The cosmological argument is not is not intended to get you quite that far. But I think here's what you can do with the cosmological argument, given that the universe uh, came into being at some point in the past. Uh, and here we're talking about the universe or the world in its largest sense, all the, the material world. Maybe universe is a better word, because the word world in philosophical realms, when you say the existence of the world, it could entail things that are not material. But on a materialistic view of things, there's only the universe. And time matter energy. So this continuum, um, this all came into being at the Big Bang. So whatever it is that caused the universe to come into being cannot be Made up of that stuff that came into being at this time, so uh, it would have to be something immaterial because it was prior to the material universe. It would have to be something atemporal because it was prior to the creation of at least of 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 physical time history, and it would have to be something powerful enough in order to uh, in order to accomplish this end. So what we're trying to do in in, in kind of a classic classic scientific sense, not enlightenment scientific sense, but in a deeper sense, classic sense. We are trying to just do an analysis. We are looking at an effect, and we are looking at the nature of the effect in order to determine what would be an adequate cause for that effect. So far, I think it's fair to say it would have to be whatever it is would be timeless, immaterial, and powerful now i'm going to add another qualifier on here that would have to be necessary and um, it's going to have to be something personal and there's a reason for this and that is there are two kinds of causes in the universe that we know of when we look at cause-effect relationships there there are two types of causes and they may might be be characterized this way i'm going to put some labels on it for the sake of discussing them there can be event causations. That is, something A, some event A, is caused by some prior event B. Um, okay. So, or it, some, some event B was caused by some prior
5: event A. You, that's
0: well, whatever. What I mean. However, you want to label it yeah, yeah. is as there there are, there are events that cause other events. Picture sure. a f- of a string of dominoes falling. You look at any individual domino and you ask, why did that? Domino fall, that's the physical event. Well, there was an event that happened before it that caused it. I'm but, with you. but of course, you see that it seems legitimate whenever you have an event causation to ask, well, what caused that event? And well, it's the domino before it, however that domino is construed. I'm just using it as an illustration for physical mm-hmm. things in the universe. And now you can see very quickly, if you keep asking what caused that, you're going to fall into a it's vicious regress. Down, right? A vicious regress if all you have is event causation. But the thing is, we, we have more than just event causation. We are aware of a different type of causation, a causation that actually initiates and doesn't need to be caused itself and that's called agency or agent causation persons okay so so you called me <laughs> and now we're having this conversation it's a whole series of events that you Ian initiated as an agent the things weren't happening before you made a choice that then resulted in a series of events which we can explain up to your choice. But then when I ask, well, what caused you to do it? And the answer is nothing caused you to do it. You initiated the series of events by your choosing an act of your will. And that's the difference between event causation and agent causation. Agents can initiate strings of events Events can't initiate anything, it's just responding to what happened beforehand, it, it happens, and then it influences other things down the line. So given these two possible kinds of causes, we realize that an event cause is not going to be adequate, an adequate ultimate explanation for the, 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 the beginning of the universe, because if there is some event that resulted in the universe, then it's fair to say, well, what caused that event? And then what okay. caused that event? And what I'll finish the thought, and then I'll let you respond. Sure. Because some I know you're right with me, but some people may not. So, so then you would, if it's all events stacked up, you are caught into a vicious regress, and there are problems with having an infinite series of events, one causing the other. I, I don't have to get into that now. A better explanation, eventually you're going to have to get to some uncaused cause. You're going to have to get to some agent. And so okay. I am going to argue that the best explanation for the beginning of the universe is something incredibly powerful that is immaterial and outside of time that is personal, and that 's pretty close to the God of the bible it 's not all the way there, but we 've really covered a lot of ground and I think that the cosmological argument, like the arguments and there are different versions of them but th- those can d- get us really close to the god of the bible somebody like the god of the bible though it might be somebody like the god of quran or you know some other powerful atemporal deity but um, I, I think that gives us a lot of progress
5: okay. Your turn. so it, it, even if i grant the the first four criteria all uh... uh immaterial uh, outside of time very powerful mm-hmm. and uh... Is a a
0: personal being
5: a personal being. Yeah. Um, e- even if we grant all those, that still only gets us to kind of, at best, a, a kind of a deist perspective. Yeah, of, of course. Of a god. Right. Uh, or, or even just kind of like, oh well, I did it. Like, whoops. You know, like okay, there's the universe. I'm gonna go back to my day job now. Like, Oops. Oh, that's
0: yeah, that's experiment. right, right. Yeah, just for fun. Oh, didn't right. like that one. I'll try another one. Well, no, the, I am admitting that you're right. That the co- the cosmological argument doesn't get you all the way to the God of the Bible. But that's like me. To, here's a parallel. That's like me taking a a jet to New York City, and I, you know, I the jet's not going to take me to Times Square. It's going to take me to Kennedy or something like that. I gotta catch a cab to get to Times Square. But I'm a whole lot closer. Okay. And well, that's kind of the way I would use this argument. Well, cool, tell
5: me about the cab ride then.
0: Yeah, there you go. Is, well the that's what I'm missing. That's well, right. no, you're not missing anything. You've assessed it, I think, quite accurately, that it is reasonable minimally it's reasonable to to conclude, and we're not asserting here we're concluding based on the evidence that a timeless, powerful, immaterial, personal Someone, of course, that would be a being who is someone. That's what it means to be personal. Is responsible for the beginning of the universe. That makes a lot of sense. Now, who is that someone precisely? Is it the same one that is recorded in the Bible? That is a different question. And now we're going, we're covering the much smaller distance from uh, from Kennedy to Times Square than from Los Angeles to New York City. All right.
5: Don't talk to me about the the cab ride. This is what I want to hear.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you, you want to deal with that issue now. Well,
5: I, I was kind of presenting to you that I wanted to hear about the cat, rides right, from oh, the get-go.
0: All right, well, then the question, then the question becomes, uh, a fair question is, is there any reason to think that this God has a personal interest in the universe, in us individually, maybe, and has attempted to, and has communicated, I don't want to use the word attempted, and has communicated with us? And this then uh, at least uh, initiates... Plausibly, a will look at some of the theistic, uh, the broadly theistic. Deism would fall into here, of course, but but in other words, the personal creator kind of religions. And that narrows it down, by the way. Now, if this god never communicated to anybody, well, we're just kind of sunk. But there are three religions that are classical theistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and, uh, and Islam, that claim that this god who has created everything has actually communicated and now you have to deal with those claims on their merits and in the case it's curious kind of in the case of islam in the case of judaism and christianity they share a revelation and in the case of islam islam the the islamic revelation the quran actually acknowledges the legitimacy of the christian revelation or the jewish revelation so all of the theistic revel uh, the theistic religions that are really in play at this point all all give acknowledgement to the authority of the Bible in some sense. And so then it becomes a matter of looking at that record and seeing if in some sense this is this can be taken as a reasonable characterization of God's revelation. Whether you think it's inerrant or not is a different question as far as I'm concerned. But I think there are a no, number of reasons to take it seriously, and I think that some of the, at least some of the ways that atheists have disqualified it, have been specious because they have not looked carefully at some of the, the some of the, the, the particulars or the rationales of the things that they find in the Bible that they don't like. So, well, um, so it comes down to the revelation of the Bible. I, I, I think that's a big part of it.
5: So, your the, the major criteria for. Why, why is this God different from all other gods? Is uh, we, we get the Bible. That's the, the bedrock of the argument, yes?
0: Well, what I'm saying is we have to ask the question of whether uh, we have good reason to believe that this God who seems to be indicated in the creation has communicated to us in some way. And this puts the Bible front and center. And then I think we have to then take assessment of the Bible and be careful not to dismiss it in specious ways. I think the fact that the Bible has been a book that has been a a massive boon to civilization um, across the board where its principles are advanced and obeyed um, is a significant um, credit in favor of the Bible. And I think it's very interesting, even in this, what you've suggested to me to listen to for the Bible tells me so, this is a pro-gay Christian assessment of the Bible. Why would, why would any homosexual want to go to the Bible at all if they didn't think there was some reason to take it authoritatively? There's an implicit acknowledgement that the Bible is worth taking seriously, which is why I think these folks want to argue from the Bible as best they can, because it's an acknowledgement that there's some authority there, and they think the authority's on
5: their side. Well, so I don't need to go to the Bible to be all right with where I am. Uh, They're in that world, they're in that community, so that's what they go to. But I, I, so, so, chemistry and alchemy... They're describing the same types of things. Mm-hmm. One just happens to do it better.
0: Well, one is maybe does it accurately, and the other one's inaccurately. And that's the question you have to, you have to ask yourself when it comes to the Scripture. Is the Scripture, is the, 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 the biblical books, are they giving an accurate characterization of history or not? And, um, I mean, that's where we're at right now. So this is progress, in my view. This is huge progress. Now we look at the book. The problem is, is people don't like what they see in the book. I'm not saying this is your case, Ian, and i got to go here. You can hear the music. I'm not saying... Uh, uh, the problem is that they don't like what they see in the book, and so then they dismiss it. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's false. So there you go. Ian, great talking to you again. I'm sure we'll have a continuation of discussion uh, with you. We have. And I'm going to the phones right now in Gainesville, Florida. And Ian, boy, this is getting to be a regular affair, Ian.
5: Well, I enjoy our conversation. Well, sir.
0: good. I'm glad you do. And, and you're a favorite on Twitter, by the way. I mean, the oh. folks enjoy when we have a conversation together as well. Happy to please. Yes, well, good. And uh, I know you. you I noticed you, to, you told Melinda I sounded a little tired today.
5: Yeah, it sounds like he give you some uh, tea with lemon and honey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I am a little bit tired, but I but I am not by this compromised. I'm up to the task of having my conversation with you. So, uh, what's on your mind today?
5: Well, I I wanted to talk about the cab ride. Last time I spoke to you, we talked about the cosmological argument and the the, the plane ride from L. A. to New York, and I wanted to talk about the cab ride from the airport to Times Square, if we could.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, then I wasn't exactly sure what we. Uh, this so people know what you're referring to, um, we were arguing in favor, I was arguing in the favor of the existence of God, using a cosmological argument, and you were saying, well, this doesn't prove the God of the Bible. And I said, right. well, that's true, it's not intended to, but th- this is like we've just taken the plane ride from Los Angeles to New York. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. Now the next step is going from the existence of a personal, powerful, infinite, uh, uh, timeless, spaceless, you know, divine being to the God of the Bible, who has recorded himself in the Bible and who is uh, incarnate in Jesus. And and that's another step, uh, which I acknowledged, and I characterized that as, well, that's like the cab ride to Times Square. So we covered the big ground, but now we're, you know, we still have to cover the little ground, and that's what you want to talk about today.
5: That's what I wanted to talk about last time, too, but... We whatever. ran out of time. Well, okay. Even yeah. from the get-go, though. Pardon me? But, uh, okay. Even from the get-go, I wanted to talk about the cab ride, right. but now... The cab ride. Right, yes, if you will.
0: Yeah. So, given the existence of God, I presume is where you're going to go. Not that you're necessarily acceding that to us, because you're an atheist or or somewhere along. So, In, I actually I don't know where you're at right now. But that's. But given, let's just for the sake of discussion, given the existence of God, how do we get from the existence of God to the God of the Bible? Correct.
5: Yeah. For the sake of the conversation.
0: Okay. So that's your question. Yes, sir. Okay. Since I have. Very good reason to believe that a personal, intelligent, powerful, timeless, uh, immaterial being exists. I can ask the question, and it's a reasonable question, has this God revealed anything in particular about himself? We can come to the conclusion based on the kind of argument I offered last time, the cosmological argument, that that, there are, that these are characteristics that seem to be the appropriate answer to the question, why is something here rather than nothing here? But, but now, given that this is a personal God, maybe this God has communicated. Well, so we poke around to see if there's any evidence of that. It turns out that in terms of the revelations that claim to be revelations of God, there aren't many, I should say religious revelations, there aren't many that kind of fall in this category. You're pretty much dealing with the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. Uh, mm. uh, 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 um There's one other uh, monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism, that isn't very large. But most of the other religions, like Buddhism and Hinduism, these are not monotheistic religions. Buddhism is an atheistic religion in the sense that God doesn't enter into it. Um, Hinduism uh, is a completely different concept of God, characteristically, although there occasionally you find a monotheistic. But then you have to ask yourself the question is there any evidence that this God is communicated? Well, the. Well,
5: you've actually already gone a step too far. How's so. that? Because there's not. There's not really evidence to suggest that it's one god. I mean, it could be a plurality of gods. It could be. There's no reason to say so far that you know the the Greek or Roman understandings of God or the Norse understandings of.
0: But god. all of those gods are finite gods. Every single one of them is a finite god. They don't. They they kind of have god status, but they are nothing like the kind of being that we described was necessary. For an explanation for the creation of the universe as we know it,
5: well, a God powerful enough to create the universe, but not—I mean, that doesn't—that doesn't have to be all powerful. And even if you have all powerful, you kind of run into a problem, like a, a logic problem, like can God kill himself? Yeah, that's I mean, like there are there are uh, problems of things can god create it
0: yeah that 's not that 's not a logic problem if you under, well i don 't know if you want to go into those kinds of questions right. but those turn out to be to be to be in, in a sense incoherent questions because it is only meant it, it, what is do what those kinds of questions do is they take a perfection and they express the express the, the uh, com- perfection in a negative form, and it looks like a shortcoming right. so it's like it can uh well uh, God can't sin okay, well, see God can't do everything, obviously he's not omnipotent but the the, the right. inability to sin is a reflection not of a shortcoming but of a perfection, a moral perfection and okay. you're, and those kinds of things fall into that broad
4: category.
5: Right, but they. So what we established before granting the premises was a God powerful enough to create the universe sure, does okay. automatically grant all powerful. And I was
0: okay. Involved. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. That's that's. It would. Yeah, okay. I, I buy that. Okay, so the question here is, but I don't think that I have to step through every single uh, possibility, like, okay, now I'm going to prove it's only one and not many. Maybe that's just an open question. But it is fair to say, whoever it is that could be the author of this, has he attempted to communicate? Well, it turns out that the Bible claims to be that communication. And Jesus specifically claims to be the one who is the one who created everything. This is part of the record. So what you can do without answering all those other questions, you can ask whether the person, given the person of Jesus and the historical record we have of Jesus, are we justified in coming to the conclusion that he was correct about what he claimed for himself? And if we have good reasons to believe that what he claimed for himself is true, then that solves those other problems by default. If it turns out that Jesus claims to be God and then lives the kind of life and demonstrates in his actions the kind of things that you would expect a person to do who is actually the God of the universe who became a man, then you don't need to ask the question of whether there were many gods or just one God, because Jesus, who authenticates himself as this God, is a monotheist. It's part of the revelation.
5: Okay, but that also, really what we have to authenticate Jesus, though... is the bible which if you're using the bible to authenticate jesus which then authenticates the bible
1: I don't,
0: i'm not doing that
5: but okay well how do we then i am
0: i am not bible? doing it the way you just described okay okay well, then so apologize, it's not no but... no no it doesn't it's it's not it's nothing to apologize i'm just I, this is a, a kind of i think a misstep that is frequently made so we're not going to call this the bible and this is part of the problem because the bible is a collection of many different books That just happens to be under one cover, and we refer to it as the Bible. But let's just set aside the Bible as some kind of religious document, and let's ask about what do we know about the life of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, we have primary source historical documents regarding this man. Principally, they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also have uh some of the writings of the early christians that touch biographically on the life of jesus and we have some external when external meaning other than those, sites, those citations or those records that come from the Christian community, we have other records that give very little information, but some information about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth that serves to uh, corroborate what we get in these larger primary source documents. The question you have to ask is not whether this is from the Bible, because I think what that does is that is it poisons the discussion a little bit in the wrong direction. Uh, We have to ask whether these ancient documents that have been handed down to us are reliable with regards to their historical information about the person of Christ. And this is precisely the way historians deal with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. And, and also with the other citations we see in the, in, in, uh, the book of Acts and in you know, some in Peter and some in Paul's writings, etc. These biographical things. Can we trust these as reliable history? And I, I'll just tell you from my experience and from my exposure and from my readings, with one qualification, scholars of ancient history routinely give very high marks to the primary source historical documents that we have, the ones I just mentioned, regarding their historical reliability. When they apply the same canons of historical analysis to those documents as any other documents that they get from antiquity, they get very, very high marks, with one exception. They don't give high marks, characteristically, to to the claims of supernatural acts. But then the question becomes, why? Why not when you're, they're dealing with documents that they, by their own canons of historical research, show to be very high indeed in terms of their reliability? And this is across the board. Um, and the answer is is because they have a philosophy that does not allow them to give these reports credibility. It is not because the evidence for them is not any is any worse than the evidence for anything else that jesus said or did it's because they have a philosophic view that disqualifies them from consideration their materialistic worldview and and so uh, there's a bias that then creeps in and this can be seen all across the board uh that sometimes is almost a little bit uh, almost astounding and l- l- let me give you one little example of this it, it is it is uh, uh there's been a significant change in uh, the Life of Jesus, the Historical Jesus Scholarship in the last 30 years. And the change has been with regards to the resurrection. And there is there are, let me, if I can remember them, there are four things that virtually every uh, historian, the rank-and-file secular historian, acknowledges to be historical fact. First, that Jesus of Nazareth lived. Secondly, that he died on a Roman cross. Third, that he his tomb was empty three days later. And four, that the disciples experienced something that they believed to be the resurrected Christ, and this thing they experienced was the thing that launched the Christian church. Now, they take these things to be historical realities. Now, what they don't agree on is what what the disciples actually experienced they all believe that they thought that they experienced the risen christ they gave their lives for it in many cases but they're not they can't go there because they have a philosophical concern so now the question is what best explains their their belief that jesus rose from the deads a belief so strong that they would give their life for it and this is where i think This almost becomes a little laughable because there's not many options, and the I mean they had a group hallucination a number of times. I mean there are all kinds of problems with that. That they were lying? No way. Um, That that what you know there's not that Jesus was an alien and people Jesus had a twin brother. You know people have suggested some of the most bizarre
5: things. May may I propose an option? Sure. So the the prevailing view at the time was of a a Roman uh understanding that of fate, and that if you were a slave, you were a slave, and if you were a king or a Caesar you were you know of the royalty class, you are of the royalty class and Judaism doesn 't really have that, but Judaism has a prohibition uh or sorry to in order to enter covenant you the men kind of have to sacrifice a little bit um, no unintended actually i'm sorry um, so how do you get around that? How do you get a groundswell of uh of slaves or how do you get a groundswell of followers where you say, Oh well guess what? You don't have to sacrifice anything. There's this other guy he made all the sacrifice for you and now you I mean there there are logical arguments that can be made for how the
0: story okay. took hold. Okay, but here's the here's the issue though, and this is mm-hmm. what first I'm going to make a distinction. Just because it's sure. logical or even possible doesn't mean it's plausible. Doesn't mean it's the best explanation. Secondly, the question the historians are asking is what is it that happened to the disciples that they took to be the resurrected Christ? The discussion here is not about. Why is the message psychologically appealing to lots of people? Your answer gives a possibility. The question is, why would the disciples who spent three and a half years with Jesus, record, the, who later on recorded his teachings and communicated them in different fashions, some wrote them down, some memorized it and passed it on, why would these men mistakenly think that Jesus rose from the dead? What, you know, and if, and if he was still in the tomb, then, of course, the enemies of Christ and the disciples could produce the body, and that's at the end of that. The body was gone, so what happened to the body? The Romans steal, stole it? They don't want to steal it. That just caused all the problems. The disciples stole it? There are all kinds of problems with that. Not the least of being is that they are now lying about what they say actually happened, and they are putting their lives on the line for for a lie they know to be a lie. Well, usually when you lie, you lie to help yourself, not to kill yourself.
5: It's just that there there happen to be a number of of parallels in the the Jesus story with other stories of redeeming God characters. Yeah. Okay. Of Mithras and Dionysus, and even the Buddha was born uh, of a virgin and was you know not born in a normal fashion. That the side was cut. Uh, uh, Okay, but, Athena, you're jumping over, you're,
0: you're jumping over something, Ian. Here, okay. because look at if if I if if you came up to me and you said I'm Ian from Gainesville, Florida. You know the guy's been talking to you, and I said no, you're not. And you said yes, I am. I said no, you're not. Why would you say I'm not Ian? And yeah. I said because I've had ten people in the last two weeks that told me they were Ian from Florida, mm-hmm. and so obviously you can't be the real one. Because a whole bunch of other people came before and said they were the real one. Now, what if you produce bona fides? You gave me your driver's license. And you said, look, here's the evidence. I'm really the guy regardless of what happened beforehand. All right? This is what I'm – you, you know, then you can establish yourself as the real person regardless of what, whatever lies people told beforehand. And this is the point here. I am talking about the bona fides for Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, whether or not, and it's actually largely not true, and I don't fault you for this because it's a common misunderstanding. I've written a whole article on it. It's, it's actually factually not true that there are all these people, like you cited, who came beforehand, Osiris, Dionysus, and blah, 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 that were much like Jesus. For the most part, this is uh, Internet fabrication, but that's a different discussion. The logical problem is even if all of these these myths happened beforehand and Jesus was just like the myth. if he produces bona fides that are compelling, that's what settles the issue. You first have to show that Jesus, the Jesus story is a myth before it's helpful to ask where the myth came from, like prior myths. But if we show that from a historical perspective, his life wasn't a myth, you can't disqualify the historical information by referring to any past parallels and past myths it doesn't that that is a logical flaw
5: well you're you're accepting the validity of the claim prior to i mean so no we're discussing yeah,
0: the validity of the historical claims that's what we're doing we're seeing is this material historically reliable that's what i'm looking at And I have, as I'm arguing, we have no good reason to mistrust the historical characterization of Jesus of Nazareth as not only a good man who taught certain things, but also as a miracle worker. And historians do not dismiss the first, but they do the
5: second. If there was a dude named Jesus, who was a really cool rabbi back in the day, and said, hey Pharisees, you're doing it wrong, uh, and was then crucified, as was would be the appropriate punishment for such
0: a person. No, we well, said, not for the guys. Jews, it wouldn't be. Well, stoning would be the appropriate punishment, the Romans crucified. That's uh, why they okay. had to get a charge of sedition with the Romans in order for the Jews to get Jesus crucified.
5: Okay. Then, in order to, if, the, if there really were, I mean, that I may not have a, such a problem with, but then you have the supernatural aspect of... Rolling the boulder away, and now the the tomb is empty, and yeah. the guy showing back up again and saying, "Oh yeah, by the way, you know, you don't believe me? Feel my hands, like yeah. I'm I'm really Jesus." Right, you know those stories like that. Well, I I have a problem with with those
0: ones No, and I understand out. entirely and, but, but you're, this is a very frank confession that you're making here and we're going to have to move, move on uh, after this comment and we'll pick this up another time but the frank confession is you're willing to accept the historical evidence as it stands with regards to the ordinary things in his life but you're not willing to accept the, the historical evidence as regards to the supernatural things in his life even though it comes from the same account and it is justified historically in the same way and this <sighs> this suggests to me that there you you are coming into the analysis with a bias uh, against the the evidence itself it has to be this way not that way because I simply don't believe in the supernatural and even when there's evidence for the supernatural you are dismissing the evidence for the supernatural because you don't at first believe in the supernatural and that actually is a bona fide example of circular reasoning
5: uh, there there are multiple accounts of historical facts, and when there are multiple accounts of Christian scholars and Jewish scholars and uh, Byzantine scholars, as you will, like, the things that I, I don't have a problem with. But then when as our God's bigger than your God, and this is what he did, when you have accounts like that, that's when you've got one group of people all saying the same thing. Like, uh, I, I want to call shenanigans.
0: All right, well then... Well, you're going to have to have a better reason to call it shenanigans, except for the fact that it just doesn't fit with your preconceived notions about it, Ian. Uh, You know, you're going to have to have a reason to call it shenanigans. And all I'm arguing here is there is no good reason that I see to doubt their testimony since they signed their testimony in blood and they had no reason to lie. That's the big thing. Anyway, something to chew on. We'll talk again, Ian in Gainesville. Thanks so much. Greg Koch will stand to
5: reason. For more Stand a Reason resources, call toll-free 1-800, the number 2, and the word reason. That's 1-800-273-2766.